He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, December 25, 2021. Hmm, is that an important day? Oh, yeah, it's Ghislaine Maxwell's birthday. That's fascinating. She is turning 60, and we talk about that case with my special guest, Chris Decker, past president, Colorado Criminal Defense Bar, most recently well-known for representing Tay Anderson, controversial Denver Public School Board member, accused of sexual improprieties. But was it true? Chris Decker will tell you what he knows, and it's fascinating. Then we have the sound of Tay Anderson, because I've never met the man, but I watched him on YouTube at the Denver School Board meeting where he got censured. That wasn't fun for him, and boy, did he push back. Tune in later in the show to hear that sound. That was an event that happened when Chris Decker's beloved father was dying. Chris celebrating Christmas with his boys and other loved ones down in uh, Ridgeway, Ridgeway, Colorado, uh, which is south-central Colorado, I do believe. Spelled R-I-D-G-W-A-Y. His dad bought a ranch down there. And you've got to hear the stories. Ralph Lauren comes up, Alan Dershowitz. But if you want to hear about Tay Anderson, it's about 30 minutes into the interview. And we dive deep into the topic. And then we also talk at the outset about Jean Benet. Cannot let Christmas go without thinking of Jean Benet. 25 years ago, lost, murdered, horrifically garroted to death after somebody bonked her in the head, too. Where's the truth? How did the Colorado justice system do? Well, that's what I talk with Chris Decker about. Then our troubadour, Dave Gunders, has an all-time song, a Christmas classic, When the Lion Lays Down, recorded on his first album when his daughters were little, and he put them to work anyway. It's a fun conversation with our troubadour, and it's Christmas. And we appreciate that. We appreciate you listening. I know that a lot of people take Christmas off, and God love them. I work on Christmas, and this is original content, and I hope you enjoy it. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Let's get started in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge with Chris Decker. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too 
decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Hello? Chris Decker. Yes. Merry Christmas. Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for doing my podcast. No worries. Happy holidays to you. I hope you had a happy Hanukkah. Do you know what the correct greeting is for a Jew like me during this time? What's, what's that? Just what you said. Perfect. Nobody knows for <laughs> sure. Nobody knows Good. for sure. Season's greetings. But Merry Christmas. I respond, well, I... Merry Christmas to you, too. And it's a festive season. And guess what? Because everybody has the day off, I ended up talking to my sister on Christmas Eve. And I love that. It's a time for family, right? It sure is. Uh, I'm spending time with my two sons and my stepmom, and uh, her birthday was on on Wednesday, and we had dinner last night together, uh, and so it really is a time of family, and and I enjoy that the most. Uh, I, I get a little turned off by the commercialism and all the presents and gifts and you know, I, I have kids, and when they were little, I was a part of it. But as I get older and as they get older, it's really just the time together and uh, doing things that, uh, to me, are the greatest gifts Absolutely. anymore. And we're both trial lawyers, and we try to organize our productions. And there are lots of reasons why you are the perfect Christmas guest. First of all, Welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. We've been talking about doing it for a while, but I wanted to save it for Christmas, and it's because of this. You are a top criminal defense attorney. Everybody respects you. You're in the Colorado courts all the time, and you've been doing it for decades. And you know about Jean Benet, and you have some feelings on this, the 25th anniversary, and we will get to that. But first, we need to talk about Chris Decker. And if I'm going to have a Christmas show, not a lot of Jewish boys named Chris. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> but Chris is the start of Christmas. And then your last name, Decker. I mean, is there a better Christmas song than Deck the Halls? I don't think there is. So I, I appreciate the, the special spot here over Christmas. And um, I... I I'm at a place where I remember Christmas so fondly, which is at the family ranch in Ridgeway, Colorado. And, and so we're going to, we went out yesterday and we, we cut a tree down and um, decorated it. And today we're going to go um, out uh, a little bit into the fields and, and we're looking forward to, to celebrating Christmas. It's stormy up here in the mountains. Uh, Telluride is getting a lot of snow and, um, we're going up to see some friends this afternoon up there. Can I just amend one thing I said? Because Deck the Halls is one of the greatest Christmas carols, but I prefer a little song 
called Silver Bells for obvious reasons. But let's go back to Christmas because I've honestly never celebrated a Christmas in my long lifetime. Christmas Eve, Christmas morning, those are foreign to me. Maybe like Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah would be to uh, a non-Jew. But Chris Decker, tell us where you grew up and how did you learn to first appreciate Christmas? What was it like? You're from the Boston area, if I'm correct. Yeah, I actually grew up in a split family. So uh, my mom lived in Boston and still lives in Boston. And my dad uh, is a rancher in southwestern Colorado, or was a rancher in southwestern Colorado. So my Christmases were, were uh, split uh, over the years, but uh, my East Coast Christmases were different than my ranch Christmases. For sure. But uh, it's always been a tradition um, to gather on on Christmas Eve. Uh, Usually we have a a big meal um, Christmas Eve. Uh, Sometimes when we were younger, we would uh, watch a movie, uh, play a board game, sit around and just really try to, you know, this is the era before electronic devices. So um, they weren't a distraction, but it was really a matter of of friends and family. Usually. members of the family who don't who wouldn't be living either in Boston or in Colorado would be would be there with us so uh christmas eve was always a, a time to to get together and be festive and um uh, many times we would light the candles uh around the house or or hang christmas ornaments on the tree and get ready for the for the sleep and then up for christmas morning so so on a, uh, on a one to ten scale, ten being the most excited. As a little kid, looking forward to Christmas. What number were you at? Oh, I was at a at an eight to ten, probably for a good ten year period, Craig. You know, uh, be, because as a kid, not only was it was it fun to see family members and and do special things, but we got gifts, and um, it, it was always a tradition that. Um, you know, when you're much younger and and you're uh, led to believe that there is this uh, omnipresent uh, Santa Claus who was all knowing, would know what it is that was in your heart and what you wanted, uh, that you would wait and see if you got what you had hoped for. Um, and then as you got older and started to realize that your parents were playing a slightly larger role in the universe than you might have thought as a young child, um, you'd always wonder whether your parents had, had gotten you the gift that you, you specially wanted. And I, I was a very fortunate kid. At what, uh, very age, lucky. at what age does that occur to a Christian child? <laughs> That's a great question. And it's usually um, a, a bit of a, a journey. So somewhere between uh, probably five and nine years old, I think it happens. And it, it's funny because it, it usually happens in a progression. Uh, I'm, I remember because I have two kids and the boy, um, they're boys, and my oldest, uh, Preston, uh, figured it out first. And there, I'm sure that this happens in most Christian families where one of the older siblings or maybe it's a cousin uh, would would tell the, the little ones, you know, that Santa Claus isn't real, that it's all your parents. And, um, and, and I remember my son Jackson getting very angry at his brother uh, that, that he was being told that that Santa Claus wasn't real. So it's a, it's a progression. Um, I never remember sitting down with either of my two boys and, and having the man to man discussion that Santa Claus wasn't real. And I never had a single discussion with my kids 
that came to me and said, you know, Dad, why did you mislead me uh, about uh, Santa Claus? I, I, I mean, why so <laughs> aren't you raising little Chris Decker's criminal defense attorney's dad? You told me this, and right. now I've discovered some inconsistencies. What else are you lying about to me? Right, right. Uh, credibility issues for sure. Uh, but but all kidding aside, they they never really you know we never really had the discussion. So it really is a trans a transformation from believing uh, in and not believe. And I always believe. And here's how I justify uh, the cross examination of being misled. I believe in Santa Claus. I do not believe there is an in, an individual who lives in the North Pole uh, and is is fat and long white beard and a red suit. But I believe that. That the the concept of Santa Claus, the the kindness and and the commitment to family and and honoring uh, Christian religion uh, is real. And so, if you believe that Santa Claus um, is not a person but a concept or an idea, then I don't think you're misleading your children when you tell them that you believe in Santa Claus, because I still do. Oh, you are good. What a positive spin. If I was prosecutor. If I was prosecuting the case, which I don't want, but I'd be talking about disinformation, misinformation, fake news, whatever. But uh, it's great that you shared those Christmas thoughts with me. And you brought up that uh, a kid starts to realize uh, Santa Claus may be a metaphor, uh, a smart kid, at about five or six, and... It's a hard segue to Jean Benet, who was five or six, 25 years ago, celebrating her last Christmas. And I got to know Fleet and Priscilla White as I covered this ordeal in the media. I'm thinking about Jean Benet. And some people have said, Craig, why did you spend so much time on that matter? And why do you care? If you can't care about little girl, little girl believing in Christmas and the promise and the excitement that they're going on a trip and she gets murdered in that hideous way in her own home. I I just don't know what you can care about if you don't care about that. I still care about it. Thanks for letting me get that off my chest, but I bet it affected you too, Chris Decker. I think it affected everybody in Colorado because when we traveled, people would say, who killed Sean Benet? As if we all knew. Right, it was a it was a terrible, terrible tragedy. I remember um, that Christmas um, for for that and other reasons. But um, you know what a horrible, horrible uh, death to a to an innocent young child. And you know I think as an attorney, the the scar, as it were, is uh, that so many people have been left not knowing or wondering or speculating. So it's lack of resolution uh, in terms of the accountability for um, whoever was uh, responsible for that, that I think um, is equally as, as tragic as the loss of that beautiful young girl. There were lots of lawyers involved, people that we know that had Morgan Foreman firm so prominent in the news representing Ghislaine Maxwell now. They represented the late Kobe Bryant. Pam Mackey is somebody I know well. Uh, She was part of the Kobe Bryant team. I've gotten to know Hal Haddon and Lee Foreman over there, and they represented the Ramses. And you think about Lynn Wood, who represented the Ramses, and what a strange journey he's been on. 
Your thoughts, you're yeah. one of the most prominent criminal defense attorneys, was this a proud moment for the Colorado Bar? As a prosecutor, I, I was criticizing Alex Hunter left and right. I thought he botched the case. And I was saying there's definitely probable cause. And it turned out the grand jury agreed with me. But I think this case was stuck between probable cause and proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And you, of all people, can talk about things like that. Talk to me, Chris. Right, right. Well, let me, before I get to that, you know, Brian Morgan was a close, close friend of my father's. And when I was a young man and um, started off in law school, I remember going down to Haddon Morgan and Foreman and sitting in Brian Morgan's office and, and getting that distinct feeling that I was really at the center of the legal universe in, in Colorado. Uh, and I was. Um, and Brian um, retired a number of years ago, but uh, I do know that firm. They're, they're excellent, excellent, outstanding lawyers uh, uh, to the person. Um, and, you know, my thoughts on, on the John Bonet murder, I, I actually agree with you. I, I think there, there certainly was some evidence, and certainly uh, those of us who practice law and understand the spectrum of proof from uh, mere suspicion or accusation to probable cause to uh, preponderance of the evidence to clear and convincing evidence to proof beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, I do not believe from what I've read that the state would have been successful, uh, especially uh, with the uh, competent and effective defense uh, counsel that was involved uh, to have obtained a conviction. But, uh, and let me say, uh, underscore that, but uh, there is a, you know, as you know, Craig, there's an ethical obligation for a prosecutor not to bring a case if they don't believe there is a reasonable likelihood of conviction. Um, I am surprised that it wasn't um, charged. Um, I, I do agree that there probably wasn't sufficient evidence to, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, but um, if there's probable cause and, and if a, a prosecutor believes there's reasonable probability of success, then a case should be brought. That's a tough decision when you're up against uh, the mighty, mighty uh, law firm and, and the most skilled attorneys uh, perhaps in the country at the time. So, uh, you know, am I surprised that it wasn't brought a little bit? Uh, I understand the dynamics, the 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 you know, bringing a case like that and, and not prevailing um, would have been fairly devastating to, to Alex. Uh, but, you know, what he chose was almost equally as devastating in not bringing it. So Let, let, uh, let's educate that, my audience about your bona fides and about your remarkable career. I've already said you're a past president of the Colorado Criminal Defense Bar, but tell everybody – uh, where you grew up uh, to be a lawyer and and how you achieved that and just your resume because to me you're an expert witness on this stuff. Well, uh, I I went to uh, preparatory school in Boston, Massachusetts at Brown and Nichols, and then I went to the University of Vermont in Burlington, Vermont for my undergraduate studies. I worked in. Uh, New York City and Los Angeles in commercial real estate for about four or five years between undergrad and law school. I, I went to law school um, 
at University of Denver, DU Law School. Wait, then let, me, quickly, let me just stop you, because I did a okay. little trip to New York to watch the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, and it's a different world. Can you imagine me, a fourth-generation Denverite? I'm always fascinated by New York, <laughs> and now I hear that you were in commercial real estate there. During when? I wasn't. What year? At 19, well, I graduated uh, undergrad in 1986, and I went to New York City in 1986, and worked for uh, Ralph Lauren uh, in his uh, commercial real estate office um, in Manhattan. Oh, my God. Would that have yeah. to be the go-go era of greed is good, <laughs> Wall Street? Am I right? Was Did you meet Charlie Sheen, or what happened? I didn't meet Charlie Sheen, but it was the go-go 80s. Uh, nothing was hotter than Ralph Lauren and his uh, button-down shirts, and he, he was really the king of fashion. Uh, and working in his commercial real estate office um, was uh, fantastic. And you know, where, where was that located in Manhattan, I assume? Uh, actually, they had several offices. In Manhattan was the main office, but they had a distribution center in Carlstadt, New Jersey, and um, actually two different locations uh, in Manhattan. So um, he was at the time transitioning from uh, franchise stores to taking back some of the franchise licenses and opening up corporate stores. He was uh, integrating vertically, uh, opening up um, retail in, in uh, off-market, so the, the, the um, discount malls and so forth. And so that was quite a time. Uh, anyways, after time that, out. I did to, you to... work out, <laughs> Did you work directly with Ralph? Did you know the guy? Oh. I knew the guy, and this comes back to the Ridgeway story, uh, and so I'll I'll do the loop. Uh, Please. We, when I was uh, about, let's see, 12 or 13 years old, uh, my father, who had moved from New York and had gone to Columbia, um, got his PhD at, at Columbia University, had moved to, to Colorado and was close friends with a lot of um, New Yorkers. Um, you mean the swell, swell people who... Uh, gravitated toward Telluride? Well, eventually, yes. So anyways, uh, there was a large ranch that uh, is contiguous to, to our property here in Ridgeway, Colorado, that was the part of the estate of Marie Scott, uh, who was a story in and of herself. But it was a huge ranch and was going to be developed. And uh, so my father and a number of other people were very interested in finding the right purchaser for this large ranch. Uh, anyways, long story short, a friend knew a friend who knew Ralph Lauren who was looking for a ranch. And Ralph Lauren traveled to Ridgeway, Colorado, and drove over that ranch with my father and his financial advisors. And uh, he wound up purchasing the property. And as a result, uh, sparking a friendship and, and, and a family relationship uh, between Ralph Lauren and my family. And so he had made a promise when I get out of college, give me a call. I'll give you a job. Uh, I thought he was just being polite, and um, and I'm sure he was. But I took a job very briefly in Boston, and about a month into my job, the phone rang, and it was Ralph Lauren's executive assistant asking me to please hold for Ralph Lauren, uh, which, of course, I did. And Ralph uh, asked me why I hadn't called him uh, after I graduated and would I be willing to get on the next plane and go to New York uh, an interview for a job. And so uh, quite graciously, uh, he hired me and I worked for him uh, for a short short period of time in New York. So 
he to this day owns the property uh, right next to our ranch in Ridgeway, Colorado. And what's he and, like? Is he a good uh, guy? He's a wonderful, wonderful uh, gentleman, and uh, he's been married to uh, his wife Ricky uh, forever. Um, they have uh, three kids. Uh, he's a very, very uh, private person. He's very, very warm and generous um, uh, to his employees and his close friends, but uh, he uh, has kept a, a great deal of privacy for reasons I, I completely understand over the years. So not a lot of people uh, see him or, or get to visit with him. It's been a, a long, long time since I've seen him, but uh, he, he's been a dear friend to, to our family. Uh, all, I right, remember, all right, for all the marbles, yeah. what was yeah. his given name at birth? Uh, Ralph Lipschitz. How do you spell Lipschitz? <laughs> You're asking a dyslexic uh, how to spell Lipschitz, a dyslexic Christian how to spell Lipschitz? Well, you're right, and that's the correct answer. <laughs> that it probably wasn't intended for English, but uh, the internet says L I F S H I T Z. Not a lot of names that are good with shit in the middle of them, but. Look what Ralph right. Lauren did. Do you still wear his fashion? I do. I do. I do. Yep. I mean, all your uh, suits, everything is Ralph Lauren. <laughs> no, not all of it. I'm I I I'm a successful attorney, but I'm not that a, not <laughs> that successful. Uh, anyway, so I I did go to uh, University of Denver and started in their uh, 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 clinic, um, and almost immediately realized that I was most happy in the courtroom, um, that I enjoyed the law, that uh, criminal justice uh, was most important to me. And so right from the beginning of law school, I was volunteering my time uh, at the student clinic, uh, at the Colorado Public Defender's Office. And Now so what years are we talking about? We're talking 93, uh, 2, 3, 4. Four, five, uh, yeah, 92, 93, I believe it was. I went to law school, and I believe 95, I graduated and was barred. So, where, where was uh, DU Law at in those days? On it was at the, uh, yeah, it was it was at the old Colorado Women's College campus. Oh, okay, right. Is, For a little yeah. while, it was there. Yep, yep. And, um, you know, because I had volunteered with the public defender's office and, and got to know them, I was offered a job. Um, First, a paid internship the summer before uh, I was barred, and then uh, started as a, a a young defender with the Colorado Public Defender System. So wow. I came up through the system. What a time uh, to come aboard! I mean, you were yeah. thrown into the fire of the summer of violence. Indeed, indeed, I was, and um, I remember it very, very well. Um, I, I was assigned initially to the Colorado Springs, El Paso County office. And I've done tours of duty in El Paso County, Teller County, Douglas County, Adams County, uh, Arapahoe County, Denver County. Um, and, you know, after 10 years uh, as a public defender, I went private and have been doing private work um, since. Wow, 10 years with public defenders. That's quite an yep. experience. How would you say Colorado's state public defender system stacks up to other states around America? It's the very best. It, it really is, and most people agree with that. Um, 
it has um, a centralized, you know, many public defender representations are not a system of attorneys. They're merely lists of attorneys in local areas that will accept a case, and there's no generalized training. There's no um, resource base for uh, many uh, court-appointed attorneys in certain states. In Colorado, it is a centralized system. Matter of fact, there's two systems. There's the public defender's office, and then there's the office of alternate defense counsel, which handles any case where the um, client is indigent and uh, there is a conflict of interest with the public defender's office. So two people rob a bank, public defender, uh, assuming that the, the bank robbers don't have money to, to hire me or you, uh, they're going to be represented by the public defender's office and then the alternate defense counsel. And both systems in Colorado are excellent. Uh, they're run by the top lawyers that I know. There's training. I often uh, have over the years uh, given lectures and trainings uh, to the um, alternate defense counsel and public defender groups. So uh, they're very good. They, they really are. Now, um, they're still uh, overworked and and there are there are those who who think that a, a court appointed a council is you know working for the government and it's no good but uh, those uh, uh, skilled and experienced attorneys in Colorado know um, especially if they've been in other states or looked at the issues nationally that the Colorado um, uh, criminal defense community including the the, the private bar the Colorado Public Defender's Office and the Office of Alternate Defense Counsel are amongst the best. They, they simply uh, have the, the skill and the training to, to do the very best they can. Right. And what a tough job they have. I was a prosecutor for 16 years. Sometimes on a busy court day, I'll see a prosecutor handling like 35, 40 cases at the podium. And I think, Wow, I did that. That was pretty stressful. But I think being a public defender, even more so, you're meeting with people who are incarcerated. Every morning you have drama. Do you look back and say, wow, how did I do that for 10 years? Yes, yes. You deal with a lot of um, hostility, a lot of suspicion and anger, a lot of mental health challenges. Um, and you you have to do... Uh, a difficult job, um, sometimes in the in, in the worst uh, environment where the client is either hostile or even worse, you know, actively trying to compromise your representation, uh, and you just learn to to set that aside. You're sometimes representing people who are very distasteful, uh, where there may be evidence that's overwhelming, um, and you have to learn uh, to handle that case just like you. Would handle any other case, which is uh, thoroughly, professionally, um, and to the best of your abilities. And you know, while while winning is nice, and and having a strong case is something that uh, you know we all uh, hope and enjoy. It's it's when you can do well under the worst uh, circumstances that I think you you are shining as a professional, really. Right, and in private practice, you can do so much more. You can meet with people in better circumstances, and to an extent, you can control your clientele, but there are still challenges. I have a taste of it, but I'm not in court every day of every week like Chris Decker. Tell everybody how your public defender experience contributed to you being one of Colorado's best criminal defense lawyers and how you put that 
into practice for the last few decades? Well, as I said, you're you're handling the toughest cases under the most challenging circumstances, and you're doing it in in numbers of cases. So, you know, the analogy I would use is is it's it's kind of like the emergency room or the trauma medicine um, of the law, where you're seeing um, hundreds and hundreds of cases. So, uh, in private practice, you may see, you know. Uh, three or four assaults uh, in a given year, um, whereas as a public defender, you may have 50. And so just the sheer volume of cases that you're required to handle gives you that many more um, sets of experiences and and um, um, abilities to hone those skills. So, you know, the number of trials you do is is two or three times as many as in private practice. Um, so you're doing so much for so many under such challenging um, circumstances. When you step back uh, and you become the surgeon, so to speak, and you and you you're you know you're going into that courtroom that you just described, and you're not handling 30 cases in a day, you're handling one case, and you've spent all week getting prepared for that appearance um, with the benefit of 10 years of of all of this. Uh, uh, somewhat chaos and, and most difficult circumstances, you just better at it because you've seen that many more cases. Um, you've had to navigate that many more uh, prosecutions. Uh, you've had, you've had to handle that many more difficult clients. Uh, so your, your resources are, are much greater than somebody who has just gone out in uh, to private practice who may be able to get more, accomplished because they have fewer cases or more money, but they may not have the, the skill set, the thousands and thousands of representations uh, underneath them to, to guide them. And, and so I think it's really having gone through the public defender system and, and the difficulties and, and the volume of cases, actually one of the things that I think makes me more experienced also is the different jurisdictions. So some court-appointed attorneys will stay in one jurisdiction, one courtroom, or one judge's division, and that's great. You know, you get lots of cases, but um, I, at this point in my career, after uh, 28 years, I practiced in, you know, 18 of the 20, is it 20 or 22 jurisdictions in the state, and so when you and handle you've, a case— Yeah, you've got a place to stay in southwest Colorado. Right. yeah. But I mean, if you if you handle a case in Montrose, it's not going to be you're not going to um, handle yourself in front of the Montrose jury the same way you are as if you're in Centennial or Arapahoe County um, or Salida um, or Lyman, Colorado. So you you know you have to understand, and you know this, Craig. You know you're you're trying this to to citizens to a jury. Um, you're navigating a local judge, but you, you're trying a case to a jury. So you got to understand uh, what it is that they want to hear and how it is they want to hear it. So I, I just think say you got me to thinking if I was trying a case in Delta County, for example, and I never have, or maybe Mesa County, I think I need to get a Trump hat to wear <laughs> as I walk into the courthouse. Yes. I, I think that's right. Um, you might not, you may not be able to wear it in, in front of the jury, but you know, you wouldn't. Uh, you you were walking in, right? Yeah, 
Right. Choose right. your choose your tie carefully. And we're and, just uh, that competitive that I would do that for my client. That's right. That's right. But uh, so the experience uh, with the public defender, and then since I've been in private practice, I, I've um, had a practice that really takes me all over the state, and that that also helps me uh, understand uh, even in in the jurisdictions where I do most of my work, like in Denver. Jefferson County or Adams County or Arapahoe County, uh, I learn things when I'm in those rural jurisdictions um, that I, I hope to, to, to bring to my local practice. Isn't the best place in Colorado to actually try a case, Pitkin County, that old courthouse? I loved it there. Yeah, that, that's great. Uh, it's a great courthouse. It's a great jurisdiction. Teller County Courthouse is still my favorite, though. Uh, and I'm reminded of, uh, have you been to Teller County? No, no I, I have, but I don't have the uh, experience with it. You do. Tell us about it. I'm yeah, just thinking, well, what is that, Victor or Cripple Creek? It's in Cripple Creek, right. Right, right. And but but it, are you comparing Cripple Creek to Aspen as a place to hang out? No, I, I was saying uh, my favorite court. No, I understand. But actual, I, I, was, yeah. I was thinking about the whole town and oh. somebody's paying you to be an Aspen to litigate <laughs> in that courtroom. Yeah. I got paid to prosecute right. Quentin Wortham, the Capitol Hill rapist. He wanted to change the venue and he was pro se. So I went and talked to him in his jail cell and I said, I hear they have cable TV in Aspen jail. You should really agree with us to go to Pitkin County. We'll stipulate to that. We had a stipulation. Judge Marks had said okay, and I got to spend uh, over a month of my life uh, getting paid to try that first DNA case in Colorado history in Pitkin County. So that's my story. What's yours? That's nice. Well, my, mine was more uh, a story of the courthouse. The, the Teller County Courthouse is beautiful. Matter of fact, I think they used it in uh, one of the TV shows or, or movies, but it's gorgeous, and it's got these long giant windows of course they don't build courtrooms with windows in them i wish but they these did. giant glass windows that look out onto the town and and onto the mountains and i was a young attorney giving my compelling closing argument um and anybody who's been to cripple creek knows there's wild donkeys that are running around and just as i paused to make a, uh, a poignant comment about undoubtedly the innocence of my client the donkeys were right outside the courthouse and started um brain don't yeah bray, oh, oh my oh, god oh, 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 oh. did the and jury course, start every, laughing everybody started laughing um including my client and i just will never i don't think i'll try another case where i'll be interrupted by wild donkeys um that's oh my story my for, god. for teller county um and uh, I would have acquitted your client just for laughing. <laughs> yeah. And, yes, and under indeed. such stress. But haven't you seen that in courtrooms when it's really serious? If somebody can yes. drop a laugh line, it's like gallows yes. humor. There's an explosion of laughter sometimes. There is. And I comment on that, actually, sometimes when I'm trying a case. Because I think it's important to, to let people know that uh, it's a way we, we break tension when we're in a very, very serious judicial proceeding and we're, we're meeting out huge constitutional promises one way or the other. Um, it's heavy stuff. And uh, you know this and anybody who's been a trial attorney knows this or, or a defendant. 
Um, and so if we can have a common moment of laughter where no one is being put down and no one, no one's rights or, or the procedures not being compromised, uh, there is a tendency to jump on it. Uh, and, and that's why we, we have these moments of laughter during a trial, because I think it's, it's a release. And I, I think it's an appropriate one. Do you have any go-to lap lines that work every trial? Oh, you know, I, I don't really have any go-to ones. They, they tend to just sort of, uh, the, the, the funnest ones I think, uh, are born of the moment. Right. And so those are the ones I, I try to stick to. I, I, as I've gotten more experience and I've done well over 230, 40 trials at this point, I've gone away from a lot of my scripted stuff because I've, uh, you know, what, what scripted is my, my chapter examinations, my structure, um, and, and so forth. But my sticky stuff, my stuff that I, I used to do because I, was, because I was an insecure young lawyer, I've kind of lost most of that because I think uh, the, the stuff that's in the moment is a little more compelling and real for those jurors. They, they realize that um, you've just been funny in the moment, you know. Do you know what I suffered through this Christmas holiday? I told some good, spontaneous jokes, in my opinion, and uh, I was accused of telling dad jokes. <laughs> there you have it. That's a dad yeah, that's, joke, that's, dad. That's, oh, that's okay. dad joke, dad. Yeah. Do well, let me tell that? you one story about yeah. Christmas. Please. Uh, because you, 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 we, we got away from it. I do want to tell you one that my memories, fondest memories of Christmas is at the ranch. Um were that we would get up Christmas morning and we would open stockings and um, meaning the, we would all hang stockings by the fireplace and we would have miniature gifts. So, right. you know, a little thing of shaving cream or a gag gift or a chocolate bar or something like that. So we would open Wait, up. How our, early were you shaving? <laughs> that would be for dad. Oh, okay. for dad. Go ahead. He would always give me odor eaters because my feet stank Ooh. so bad. Yeah. There's a there's a hint that fed right in the sock. I get it. There you go. Yeah. So, anyways, we would get up and we would have stockings. But uh, living on a ranch, we had to feed animals. So, you know, for those of you uh, who who don't understand ranching, the winter time is is the time where your a lot of your activities are shut down. You're not irrigating. You're not haying. You're not um, um, tending to a lot of animal husbandry like birthing or or weaning or branding. So wintertime, uh, at least at our ranch, we had the cows near the near, near the house, and we would feed them from a large uh, 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 feed uh, stackyards. Excuse me, stackyards of hay that we would uh, stack in the fall when we would cut the hay. So, really, in the wintertime, the majority of the day was oriented around feeding. And we would always feed in the morning because if there was a storm or something went wrong, you had the full day ahead of you. So Christmas morning, we would always open stockings. Then we would go out and feed the animals, which which looked like going out in a tractor. And um, at one point, my dad had a, a team of horses and we uh, fed from a sleigh. But uh, primarily, we were feeding from tractors and we were feeding out uh, about 500 head of cattle, uh, a couple ton of hay, and then going up to the creek and with a sledgehammer and breaking ice so that they could get water and that would be feeding. So then after we fed, we would come back 
and open presents under the tree and and have a big meal. So my Christmas, my fondest Christmas memories were opening stockings and going out and feeding in the snow and then coming back and, and opening Christmas gifts around the fire uh, at the ranch house. So that's that's the quintessential Chris Decker Oh, my Christmas. God. And all your bad stories involve animals. I like that. The donkeys, yes, horses. The, the, yep. the horses, the 500 you, cattle. Why only 500? Why not 5,000? Anyway, I guess you have to be in Texas for that. But it sounds like you had a remarkable childhood, and uh, you've had an incredible career, but as per usual, but we can do it on a podcast 40 minutes in, I don't want to bury the lead because you've represented so many prominent people, but right now you represent one of the most prominent politicians in Colorado. His name comes up all the time, and he's a youngster. His name is Tay Anderson, and you were hired by him when he got accused in a very public way of sexual improprieties. And... uh why don't you tell the story, if that's okay? How did you come sure. to get involved with Tay Anderson? I've never met the man. What's he like? Tay's a wonderful person, and and how he reached out to to me um, uh, when the allegations, um, the the anonymous, unsubstantiated allegations of sexual assault first arose from Black Lives Matter fifty two eighty. Um, he had done some calls and apparently my name had come up in terms of defending uh, these types of allegations. So he reached out to me um, and was very confused because um, he didn't know what the particulars were because the way this came out, it was released by press release uh, by Black Lives Matter 5280 and they were they were simultaneously asking him to apologize and step down, but they hadn't really explained who this allegation was coming from or what the what the details were so Kay anderson he, a, an elected member of the denver public school board i went to yes. denver public schools gw so i've been following his career with interest keep going yeah so so he didn't know what was going on um initially be, because he hadn't raped anybody and and didn't know what this is all about so he he was confused we had to gather a lot of information and so it was uh really uh, a matter of weeks or even months before we came to learn a lot of more information about who this allegation was coming from how it had come how it had come through uh, Mary Kay uh, Mary Kay Fleming's whatever it is was she the lady uh, and, who I saw on TV saying that there were 64 victims yes yes she testified uh, in front of the state legislature that there was a pedophile in the Denver public school system who had raped uh, all of these uh, DACA or dreamers. And um, at, at the microphone, she, she never named this individual. She didn't explain why she waited for the state legislature microphone to, to act on this information. But she um, told others uh, not publicly, at least not that we could find, that who she was talking about was Tay Anderson. And everybody jumped to the conclusion that it was Tay Anderson because he had already been dragged into the mud on this first phase of the allegation, which was the BLM 5280 uh, anonymous complaint. 
So how yes. how old is Tay Anderson right now? I think Tay Anderson. My goodness, he's still in his Google early twenties, I think. Yeah, he's twenty two, maybe twenty three. Okay, uh, very, very, um, very young. But anyways, he's he reached out to me, and we started to gather information, and then really, Mary Kay uh, Fleming wasn't until uh, several months after the original allegations, and um, it was Denver Public School. Uh, board that decided to act on this anonymous allegation that wasn't even brought to them. It was brought to BLM 5280. But because Tay was on the board, they felt it was appropriate to initiate um, what they called an external investigation, uh, which initially was solely based on that. And then, of course, as the uh, false allegations spread and more and more fantastic allegations arose, um, this external investigation broadened uh, the scope of their investigation. So, um, you know, it became, it became a, 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 well, a hodgepodge of various allegations um, that were not even in existence when the investigation began. Right. He had the whole kitchen sink tossed at him. I tuned in to that Denver school board meeting when he got censored but not removed, and he gave a passionate speech in his own defense. I may play it as part of uh, this program, but— Well, hold on. Hold on. Yes. Let me interrupt you. You said he was censured but not removed. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, as I you understand remove, it, yeah. that, that the the school board uh, as a group decided that he should receive a reprimand of sorts as censoring, right. but he would be allowed to keep his position and nobody was advocating that he lose his job. Well, that's did, not I, a, did I that's say not that accurate. wrong? No, you said it right, but it's not accurate. Okay. Uh, he is an elected official. The right. board could not uh, um, fire him. The board could not remove him. But there they, could, were they board... could ask him to step down. Exactly. And right. and, and that, that part was accurate. There were board members that were asking him to step down. Um, but not a majority. But, uh, that's correct. And and so there, were, there was no process uh, that the board could remove him that that's he was, right and, he was and i interjected just because yeah. to show you my limited knowledge and i listened <laughs> to tay anderson's defense but let's back up you've got all yeah. these allegations yeah. swirling and you as a criminal defense attorney what do you do when you know there are hearsay claims of all these scores of women how do you start what do you do as the lawyer well you know you're 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 there's not much you can do except try to uh, maintain uh, honesty when you're in your public uh, statements. The, the bottom line is, n- n- you know, everything was anonymous. And so unlike my training, which is, look, there's a formal charge. Here's what you're charged with. Here are the elements of those crimes. Here's what we know the rules of evidence are. And here's what the rules of procedure are. And here's what we know from the uh, 200 years of case law. That, that how we try these cases when you're when you're trying a case in the in the court of public opinion you don't get due process all you get is a microphone and um and then you have to navigate 
uh, situation as best you can. So what we did was we agreed to cooperate fully uh, to this investigation. Tay Anderson had absolutely no obligation to do that. He could have he could have said, go pound sand. I didn't do anything. I'm not agreeing to an investigation. Do whatever you want. Uh, he didn't do that. He, he agreed to to submit to um, uh, numerous interviews and painstaking uh, uh, inquiries into every aspect of his personal life uh, from a period of time from before he was even an adult when he was uh, essentially still in high school uh, till up until the day he was being interviewed. And in fact, the, the investigations law firm uh, even referenced some of his behavior after he had interviewed with them and in the public forum. Uh, in, in the form of his Facebook postings and his his statements on a, a radio show by, by Brother Jeff. So they were investigating him up and through and past when they interviewed him. So bear in mind this. Tay Anderson ran for the board while he was still in high school. Okay. <laughs> um, he also ran and then he did not win that first election. So his, his whole first campaign was b- before he was an adult. When he re-ran, he ran um, in a, um, an open election. So he didn't run in a district. He's he's a, ran in a general election and did very well. He he garnered more votes than uh, any of the other school board members uh, did um, by virtue of his uh, citywide uh, race. And so this investigation um, – was largely about conduct that had absolutely nothing to do with his conduct while he was on the board of directors, uh, which I believe should have been the limits of that investigation, uh, which is just the time and conduct during his period as a board member. The the issue, the reason we agreed uh, to go outside that time frame is the initial allegation, the anonymous woman who remains anonymous, but Everybody in the investigation and all of us know who this person is. This anonymous person um, was alleging this uh, sexual assault during a period of time before Tay was a board member. So we wanted to clear that up. We wanted to answer questions about it because we knew who this was. and We knew um, her relationship with both uh, MK and um, uh, one of Tay's former opponents, uh, Jennifer Bacon, uh, who who ran against Tay and lost, and then um, uh, was on the board later on um, and did not recuse herself or identify her relationship with the parties involved. So are you saying that some of these accusations are political? I'm saying that uh, there, yes, the anonymous woman who made allegations against Tay, worked on a campaign against him. Uh, And uh, what I was really commenting on is that I believe that uh, Jennifer Bacon had a gigantic conflict of interest, which she did not disclose to anyone at the board or to Investigations Law Group. We pointed that out, um, and nobody seemed to care. Well, Tay Anderson withstood that investigation. One of the ways he got nicked, criticized, and ultimately some members of the board said, uh, we're going to air public criticism, is he responded 
to some social media and he used the word bitch. There was an image of a gun. What was that all about? That was a Bugs Bunny meme um, that he posted on his private Facebook page uh, for a short period of time. Uh, it was not directed at any individuals. Um, and it was the it was the taillight violation that they wrote him up for. This is, you know, they, they bring him in for 62, 65 rapes, and then they, they cite him for uh, a Bugs Bunny meme and um, some other posts that right. and, and, uh, and anonymous and people felt were, were threatening. This is the part uh, that I he, heard, and, and this had to be frustrating to you because while this was happening, uh, you were experiencing horrible events in your own family. Am I right? Then your loved one passed away? Yep, yep. I mean, it, 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 life happens while you're representing clients. Was it your mama? My father. Oh, my your father. father. Oh, my God. And you were close to your dad and all that goes with that. And there's the first Christmas. And I, all I know is I watched Tay Anderson, and uh, you and I have talked, and other people have talked about some Republican detractors who troll you on the Internet and call you names, accuse you of being a pedophile. And didn't Tay Anderson aim that meme specifically at a guy named Joey who was harassing him? And and isn't it part of the lingo on the streets these days that if you use the word bitch, it doesn't really mean you're talking about a female? A lot of people tried to say he was threatening females. I don't think so from what I heard him say at that board meeting. No, there's there's no evidence that he's threatened females. And there's no evidence that that Bugs Bunny meme was... Uh, directed at, at any any individual, Joey Jabroni or whatever his name is, or or anyone else. Um, you know, uh, he was in. You know, you talk about me being in a dark place. This this is a young man who who um, was also going through um, a lot of uh, trauma in his own life, and 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 joy. He is. He had a son that was born right during this period of time. His grandmother passed away. Um, and he he's was, talked about you know, how he was near suicidal. It's pretty profound yeah. to hear a young man talk that way. And um, I listened. It caught my attention. Yeah. You don't hear people talk about that very often. No. Uh, Tay's a very transparent person. You know, there, there's there's a reason he's such a lightning rod. You know, he he's young. He's handsome. He's brash. He's got a very, very aggressive agenda. Um, you know, it's it's not a surprise that that he rubs a lot of people the wrong way, because the truth of the matter is, he lo he rubs a lot of good people the right way, and and so you know he he draws attention. There's no question about it, and he'd be the first to admit. Now, has he learned to? to modulate uh, what he does and how he says things, you bet. And and he'd be the first one to tell you. Uh, he'd made public apologies about certain behaviors he was engaged in and that he admitted during this investigation, a non-criminal, no sexual assaults, no threatening of women. Uh, this, you know, is a young man who's, uh, you know, basically 18, 19, 20, 21 years old during the period of time that this private law firm uh, drilled down um, and accepted any reference. That's, you know, that was the one thing that really frustrated me. You know, we cooperated with this law firm 
a women's law firm uh, run run by two women who have done primarily workplace uh, and and you know gender bias type investigations. They were completely ill-equipped to handle this type of massive uh, public domain information. They were being fed junk from Joey Junk Jabroni and all of his wingnut right wing fans and friends, and they were gobbling it up and, and investigating it as if it were credible leads. Um, so they they really bogged down. That's why it took so long. That's why they spent so much money, because they bogged down in, in crazy, um, you know, completely uh, false and un- literally unbelievable allegations, like that Tay Anderson raped 26 DACA students, and that I signed NDAs with all of them, and that you know, the Denver school board was in a massive conspiracy to suppress this information. You know, they, they, they actually looked into that. Um, and, and I just don't think that they had uh, the right type of focus. Uh, I think they got repeatedly distracted and led along. You know, uh, many uh, on that far right fringe that you're talking about were, have, have subsequently, as recently as this morning, um, bragged that they were responsible for bringing the allegations. And, and so, you know, are they, were they, who knows? But uh, anytime you're, you're uh, tasked with an important, uh, independent, objective investigation, you, you better understand what the scope of your investigation is. You better understand what's credible and, and what you should be investigating and what you shouldn't. And, um, you know, with, with, and, and there's, the way that report came out, there's plenty of room for criticism on all sides. And I've, I've heard it. I've, I've heard those from the far right saying this was a, a ginned up investigation, you know, by Tay's friends. And that's why these allegations were unsubstantiated. And there's many folks on, on, on the, on the other side that are, that are saying, you know, this was a witch hunt from the beginning that they, of course, they were going to find some sort of fault and, you know, to uh, a meme and a private Facebook post, uh, was, was proof that they were never going to just let them go given all of these allegations. So it was a mess. I think it was bungled. Um, and I, I felt it was a very strong, uh, female gender bias throughout the entire investigation. And, and I understand what gender bias looks like. I've been in the room when uh, um, male gender bias is, is at work and profound, and I've, I've learned to recognize it and fight it. And I've been in the room when female gender bias is present and profound. And, and I, knew, I knew from the get-go that this investigation was, was highly biased um, in terms of gender perspective. Wow, if nothing else. that's a fascinating term, female gender bias. But I want to stick to the politics of it a little bit because I know sure. some of Tay Anderson's harshest critics, and he should wear some of it as a badge of honor because he experienced uh, vitriol from Denver Trump radio, which I call right-wing radio in this town, which dominates. And uh, the worse you could say about Tay Anderson, the more... Uh, your audience approves that kind of crap. I call it MAGA-based yep. crap. And he became a target. He's a prominent Democrat. And I think a lot of it was racist against him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's a perfect uh, whipping boy for those guys. Am I right? You're, he is the poster boy for uh, 
far right hatred groups for sure. There's no, he just, he checks every box really. Um, his, you know, he, he really just does. And, and, and he recognizes it. And, and I think, I think you're right to some, to some extent that, you know, that, that may be, I don't know, a badge of honor is the right phrase, but it, it, it means you're, it means you're agitating and it means you're getting uh, attention from those people you're, you're trying to affect change against. And, and I think you'd agree with that. Um, now, is it hard? Yeah. You know, has it been scary and dangerous sometimes? You bet. Um, because there have been and um, numerous threats against him, uh, against uh, me and my family, uh, employees of uh, the law firm that was representing um, the board of the Denver school board, you know, just all over the place. And um, I guess if, if they're out there threatening you, it, it means you've got their attention. It's still uh, disquieting. I'm sorry you and your family have had to experience it. Uh, it has no place in our political dialogue. It's kind of new. And the one thing about Tay Anderson, he doesn't back down. He's retained civil counsel to sue some of these people, and perhaps they're looking at more. What can you tell us about that? I know you do criminal work exclusively, if I understand it. Tell us what you know about this civil litigation that he's initiated. Well, I, I don't know a whole lot. He has brought uh, a civil uh, civil claims against individuals uh, who he believed were responsible for um, public statements that were false, knowingly false, and intentionally harmful. Um, and you know, I can I can tell you that I was by his side while he was. Uh, the subject of these statements, but I'm not, I'm not his attorney who's uh, suing um, under that cause of action. Now uh, I do know the case has been filed and, I, and he has a separate counsel on that. Um, I do primarily do criminal defense. I do some title nine defense and um, the, the representation of Tay was certainly not a criminal proceeding, although we did uh, meet with Denver police department, contrary to what a lot of people said, we, uh, met with Denver police and, and answered their questions. We met with investigations law group, answered their questions. Um, and, and so as far as the civil lawsuit is, you know, I, I really don't know too many of the details. I looked at the complaint when it came out and I'm, you know, I'm not surprised that he did turn around and sue some of these people. I know that he sued uh, Mary Kay Fleming. And uh, I think that's, you know, not surprising if, if someone took the microphone um, at the state legislature and said, Craig Silverman uh, is a pedophile and he's raped uh, 65 of his previous clients, um, you know, you might consider uh, filing a lawsuit against that person. Right. How awful. It's, it's something that you have a lot of experience in. If you look up Chris Decker on the internet, you'll find his law firm and it talks about representation of people accused of sex assault. I have much more experience prosecuting people who have committed sex assault as a civil attorney and in my prior career as a prosecutor. But you've taken the other side, and uh, I, I think that's important for everybody to have good lawyers. But what a tricky subject, isn't it? And the Me Too movement. Tell us why you uh, featured that on your website, and, and do you agree it's really a complicated field? It is a complicated field. It's an important field. Um, I I didn't wake up one morning and, and 
decide I was going to specialize in sexual assault defense, but I did handle a number of, of cases over the years, and those cases try out differently. Um, just like a homicide tries out differently than a theft case, uh, sexual assault cases are, are very unique. Uh, there's something about a sexual allegation that's different. And you just look no further than Tay Anderson, and you can just see, you know, it's, it's almost as if the allegation uh, is itself proof. And people start at a different point when you're alleging sexual assault, particularly sexual assault against a child. And so there is this phenomenon where we run around and convince ourselves that we're, we have due process of the law and people are presumed innocent and, and we have these processes and we honor these processes if we follow the rules. But there's something different about sexual assaults and, and jurors will tell you um, that there's something different about it. And so um, really it was a matter of some professional experience. I was successful on a number of uh, cases. I have been um, successful over the years in defending them. And, and and the reason I've been successful is I've, I've had clients who have not done these acts and I've learned how to defend um, the, the most disturbing type of allegations uh, in the most effective way. And I have represented people who have been convicted and um, probably based on good, very good evidence, but uh, I don't, um, I don't change, you know, I'm a professional. So if you hire me, I'm going to defend you. And if the evidence is against you, the jury's probably going to convict you. If the evidence is in, in your favor or we can establish um, positive evidence in your case, then you're probably going to win. So they are important cases. Um, they are the type of cases that most people don't want to handle. And that's why I believe they're the most important ones to pay attention to, because we got to get it right. When we send away people for an indeterminate to life sentence, uh, just like on a murder case, you got to get it right. You know, we look back, I think you and I were just talking the other day about the, the um, testimony about hair fibers. And and you and I both remember cases where we had experts coming in talking about hairs and matching hairs. Um, and turns out that science um, was not all it was promised to be. And there were there were bad convictions that resulted because of that. So for the same reasons we need to challenge the sciences that we're presenting to jurors, we need to challenge ourselves to handle the most difficult cases uh, in the same way we would handle um, a less controversial one, like a theft or a drug case, uh, where it tends to be much easier to be open-minded, fair, and rational. But when you say sexual assault on a child, fair and rational, sometimes jumps out the window. Right. And the stakes are so high. I was quoted saying this as I covered the Kobe Bryant case. And I'd love your thoughts about that. I think about Kobe Christmas. I associate it with basketball and that man dead too young. I saw him up close and personal in that courthouse walking with his attorney, Pam Mackey. And I said this as I analyzed the case for KOA and Channel 7 and anybody who asked me, I said, as a former prosecutor, rape is an abomination, and so is a false accusation of rape. Am I right? Absolutely, which is really why I believe that, you know, getting back to Tay, why the allegations were so poisonous. They were intentionally made to be sexual. They were intentionally made to be sexual against children because those who were spreading these lies and smearing him knew that there was going to be a rub-off value. There was going to be 
uh, you know, harder, harder to answer. More people are going to believe it. Uh, more people are going to suspend reality and just assume that, well, if there's an allegation, there must be truth. But, but yes, uh, sexual assault cases are, you know, sexual assault is a horrible crime. And, and sexual assault against a child is, is an unspeakable crime. And that's why we need to make sure that we get it right before we stamp uh, our nation's approval and say this is, this is justice. You know, United States justice. Boom stamped on this case, we better be damn sure that we get it right. And getting it right means you got to have skilled and, and trained prosecutors who, who know how to examine witnesses and pre present child testimony and, and all the related sciences. And we need skilled defense attorneys to, to be defending these cases. And it's through the engine of this adversarial system, as long as we follow the rules, and it's through the engine uh, of those trials that we have the output of justice um, that we hope for and that we promise our kids that we're, we're living up to right, on Christmas right. morning and, mm -hmm. and on Hanukkah and on every other holiday, 4th of July, when we, when we, you know, uh, recall our nation's birth, you know, we, we, we want to be proud and we need to work hard to be proud. We can't just raise a flag and, you know, claim everything's good. We got to work in the courtrooms. We got to work, um, to make sure justice is really being right. uh, hammered and, out. And maintain our sanity. Because I think about yes. Kobe Bryant, who that case ended up being dismissed because they couldn't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Plus, the victim said, drop it. But she hired Lynn Wood and a Colorado lawyer, John Clune, to sue Kobe Bryant. And I attended some hearings on that case that resolved. I'm sure Lynn Wood got richer. But to me, it's a cautionary tale because to me, Lynn Woods lost his mind. He's connected to the Jean Benet case, Kobe Bryant case. Uh, he was formidable, but now he's he's lost it. I wonder if you have any insights on how that happens. I d I was surprised myself, Craig. You know, he he really was associated with some very high level practice for a lot of years, and you know, when I when I saw his latest um role so to speak i was a little confused i mean i guess it it probably just goes down into the category of you know you you're past your prime and you get a shot to be in the in the spotlight you're going to take it uh and, and maybe maybe you're not ready to run the ball if you read up on it and i have there was a religious conversion a born-again moment some crazy emails to his law partner so you can kind of trace the etymology of it I, I don't have all the answers, but there have been interesting things written about it. But I want to switch to another case that I went to New York to follow, one of the biggest sex assault, uh, sex trafficking cases ever, Ghislaine Maxwell. You know, and I wrote about it in the Colorado Sun, that Ghislaine turned to two great Colorado lawyers, Laura Menninger and Jeff Paliuka. You know those people. What do you think about that? Uh, Laura and Jeff are the best. They are they are amongst the best lawyers in the country. I'm not surprised that that uh, Miss Maxwell um, tapped their their significant experience and resources. Um, and you know, I'll, I don't know the truth of the matter. All I know is that uh, Miss Maxwell is well represented uh, by two two of my favorite people and two of my favorite lawyers uh, who are hailing from uh, the Haddon Morgan. Uh, house, House of Haddon. Right. And they're using 
tried and true tactics, although it didn't work yeah. with me. They called Elizabeth Loftus. She's been on 60 Minutes. She's a memory expert. I know you've utilized her services. And I got to cross-examine her in a triple homicide case that happened also in the mid-90s at Club Temptation. Michael Casada killed three Denverites, three GW graduates, and he got convicted of triple murder despite Elizabeth Loftus telling the jury and me that our eyewitnesses' memories were really not that great. You know Elizabeth Loftus. What did you think about that? Talk to us about her. Oh, I, I think Dr. Loftus is, is uh, a wonderful resource. Uh, I, I don't want to speak to her testimony in your case because I, I don't know uh, the particulars of it. But I will tell you that uh, Elizabeth Loftus really pioneered uh, much of what is now modern um, memory science. You know, what are memories? How are they laid down? Um, are they, you know, are they fallible? Um, you know, what affects memories, um, all of these issues, uh, no matter where you come down on a particular set of facts, are all the area of a great development. And, and Dr. Loftus, um, um, I think it, she's out at Berkeley, uh, really pioneered the science. As a matter of fact, one of her earliest and most notable um, uh, studies was creating a false memory. And she, in a clinical setting, um, sat down and, and told kids with their parents' uh, permission um, that a particular um, act had occurred to them, a tragic uh, event, which had never happened to them. And they were told that it had, and they were given all kinds of details about it. And then she studied this in, in a clinical setting. And these children came to believe that this event occurred. And um, the difference between a sincere but mistaken belief and an actual memory is very, very hard to tell. Uh, and one of the, the most common uh, misnomers is that the more confident an individual has about their memory, the more accurate it is. In fact, that's not true, um, statistically speaking. There are ways of establishing whether someone's memory is true, but uh, the person's confidence uh, is not one that is scientifically reliable, just like, and we know this from the ID science, that uh, many false convictions occurred with with bogus IDs. And we, we know that from talking with jurors that when a person would say, that's the man over there who robbed the bank, I am 1000% certain that jurors tend to believe that, well, the more certain the witness was, the more accurate uh, the idea was, and and that's that's another example of we know that that's that's not true. So Dr. Loftus um, has pioneered uh, the study of memory, and there's um, other doctors. Uh, I think it's Dr. Vanderkalk at Harvard um, is is also studying how trauma and certain brain chemistry affects memories. Um, but there's a lot of things that have changed, and you know we used to. 20, 30 years ago, talk about, you know, repressed memories. Well, um, the science uh, on that has been definitive for more than 30 years, that, that repressed memories simply are not a thing. Uh, you can talk about them, you can say you have them, you can present them to a jury, but those who study uh, the science of memory um, really uh, have discounted that um, 
through numerous studies over really quite generations. That's no longer really uh, that controversial. Um, but you know there are new things, and and the 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 science of memory and how it is that we uh, know things. Um, is it because we're remembering things, or is it because we know them through other sources? And so. Uh, Dr. Loftus has been uh, a real leader in that science, and I'm not sure what she said in the, the Maxwell trial. My, my guess is that she testified that, look, um, someone may be saying they have a memory, but that may in fact be um, something they have come to believe based on uh, post-event uh, information or motivation. Um, so right. uh, my, my guess is that they presented her to to – uh, nullify what the victims were saying that this is what happened to me and I remember this and she uh, was not testifying that they were wrong necessarily but that their confidence in that um, may be subject to to error and may really be the result of of other events or other motivations right and a, the tactic may work what do you make of it they've been out the trial lasted three weeks it was supposed to last six weeks uh closing arguments were delivered the juries deliberated three days they chose not to deliberate on the 23rd and now they have a big christmas break god knows who's going to get the oh my god variant over the christmas break i'd worry about that if i were on the case they're going to come back after the Christmas break. Our show airs as a Christmas special. How do you think Jeff and Laura are feeling right now? The Maxwell defense team, I think they're in the catbird seat. They are. They are. Anytime you've got a jury out and not coming back with a conviction, uh, it's good time. And the longer they go, the, the more, uh, we, you know, it's speculation, but the more we can speculate, there's, there's, uh, uh, division within the jury. There, there's question about what has or hasn't been proven. Uh, we and don't they know sent out a question, and I was there for this critical part. Jeff Paliuka cross-examined Carolyn. She only used her real first name, did not disclose her last name, but she was rich because she had dipped into the Epstein Fund for roughly $3 million. Turned out she had exaggerated some of her claims on the form to get the compensation. Jeff brought that out. And you know who she blamed for that? She blamed her lawyers. Well, that didn't work too well for me. But the other key question that Paliuka asked was, in 2007, when you were interviewed by the FBI, did you say anything about Ghislaine Maxwell? You didn't, did you? And she admitted that. And now the jury is saying, we'd like to see that report from 2007. But the reality is, there's nothing to uh, give them because it was not admitted. It was just Jeff's question. And it traces back to the fact that the FBI doesn't document their reports. They don't tape it. They don't uh, film it. And they just rely on their write-ups, and it could bite them in the bud here. What do you think about that theory? I think it's it's a strong one. And, you know, I, I when I'm teaching trial practice, I, I talk about seeding, uh, seeding, a question or seeding a doubt. And that's what he did there is he, he asked a question and he, he seeded a question in a juror's mind that won't go away. And they want that question answered or it meant something to them. So anytime you posit a question like that and you have a juror uh, following up with a question, 
you know you have gotten at least one juror um, on, on that issue. And I think it's a good one because it goes to her motivation. And motivation, of course, is the first cousin for credibility. Right. They're saying there are scores of girls, maybe hundreds, and a lot of legal experts are copying what I wrote in the Colorado Sun. Will the jury wonder if there are hundreds of women? Where are they? We've only seen four. And we know they see binders full of discs containing probably photographs, maybe videos. Some of this dates back to the early 90s, so you're not sure what he recorded in his house, but Epstein recorded everything. And Maxwell knows the secrets, and those secrets are on those discs, but the jury only got a minuscule portion of it, and they may be wondering about that too. I think they would naturally be worrying, wondering about you know this quote-unquote mountain of evidence. And when you know, they're told they're going to be in a six- or eight-week trial and it ends after three or four weeks, what do you think a jury thinks about that? I think the optics are in favor of the defense in that situation, where it looks like uh, the optics from a juror is going to be, well, you know, why did they shut this down? Why didn't we hear from dozens of women? Why didn't we um, see hours and hours of videotape, you know, proving this and such person was there and this and such day uh, with this other person or, you know, I mean, it, it seems like the there should be more corroboration. Uh, with with all these videos, and anytime you know you you have a jury where their expectations are set high, six weeks that's an overwhelming case, and then all of a sudden they the DA you know uh, trims down. Uh, I think the optics are good for the defense. Um, that said, you know I've I've seen good prosecutors trim down a case uh, in the middle of it when they know things are going well and they don't want to. Um, necessarily string things out if they're in a good place. But, uh, you know, uh, I guess one of the two of those. (laughs) I know. And right now, if you had to bet on what's going to happen, maybe not guilty as a slight favorite, but you have to think about a hung jury, the bane of our existence. It happens if you do this line of work. Am I right? It does. And they're they're difficult because... uh, Everyone wants some sort of definitive conclusion. And, of course, the hung jury is uh, definitive in one sense, but it's not guilty. And so as a defense attorney, we're as, as sometimes as disappointed as we are, we, we have to learn that uh, any outcome short of a, a conviction is good. Um, some better than others, right? An acquittal is, is, is wonderful. Uh, game over, you win. Uh, but a hung jury is you're still alive. Um, again, the split would be important, right? If it's 11-1 to convict, you know, you may want to start talking to your client about a deal. Um, and if it's 11-1 to, uh, acquit, then the prosecutors may need to rethink their, their prosecution. Um, and sometimes we don't know what the split is. I know it. I know I've taken so much of your Christmas Eve. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it, but we can't let you go without talking about, the case in Colorado that a lot of people are talking about, the sentencing of the trucker. Yes. Um, what do you make of it as such an experienced criminal defense practitioner? Well, uh, Aguilera Medeiros is uh, a fantastically routine case in one sense and, and highly unique in another. So uh, it's so unique that so many people have come so quickly 
to the conclusion that the the sentence number is wrong. Uh, whether you agree with that or not, there is a a giant uh, outpouring of individuals who believe it is improper. I've got including- people. I've got people all over the world listening. So let me just set yeah. it up a little better. A trucker lost his brakes driving down the mountains. They were out for some time. He missed some uh, truck ramps that he could have turned up. He was in an apparent panic. There was a congestion of about 24 vehicles toward the bottom of the mountains. He crashed in, killed four people, maimed countless others. He stood trial for it, got convicted, and the sentence due to mandatory minimum sentencing requiring consecutive sentences caused it to be well over 100 years. A Kardashian has complained. Lots of people have signed a petition Chris Decker, what do you think? It, it's it's well, unbelievable how it is how how the outcry has emerged. Yeah, so the, it's credible the outcry, but what the, it's the result of two things. It's the result of mandatory minimums and the prosecutor's discretion on how to charge a case. And so, in this case, uh, the charging uh, district attorney was Pete Weir, the previously elected district attorney of Jefferson County. And because he chose to charge this not just as vehicular assault or vehicular homicide, right? So vehicular homicide for the four that were killed and vehicular assaults for uh, those who were injured but not killed. But because Pete Weir chose to charge it as first-degree assault um, uh, under a, a non-intentional theory, so it's, it's recklessness um, with a deadly weapon – that makes it a, a crime of violence, meaning that there are mandatory sentences. So it's the confluence of the charging discretion of a district attorney using uh, a set of minimum mandatories and applying it to a massive accident uh, that results in this 110-year sentence. And it's, it's most remarkable that Alexis King, who is the new uh, elected district attorney, um, has already filed a motion to have that sentence reconsidered. She ran on a reform campaign, a reform basis, and despite the fact that she sent her deputies in there to 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 try this case, um, she had every right to not pursue the first-degree assault counts, which she knew was going to result in this mathematical de facto life sentence. Um, but she's reacting. Uh, she's responding to the reaction um, almost immediately. How many times have you seen that, Craig Silverman, where a district attorney has just won a case, gotten a huge sentence, and then um, filed a motion saying we want to reconsider the sentence down? It, it it never happens quite like this. But I anticipated something similar. I know Pete Weir. I respect him. We grew up together in the system. We were neighbors. He'd be driving to Jeffco to be a deputy DA. I'd drive to Denver. We both lived at Woodside Village, 8600 East Alameda in one-bedroom condos. I watched him meet his wife there. Anyway, I know Pete Weir, and he's a good man, former district court judge. And I got to know Alexis King by having her in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, where you are, Chris Decker. And I liked her, and she's got a public defender background just like you, and she's in Jeffco, which is a remarkable judicial district, and I got called by Channel 9 to comment on the appropriateness of the trophy exchanged by the deputy DA 
with the senior deputy. And I got a chance to say some of it aired, some of it not. Everybody needs to calm down. Of course, Alexis King is going to agree to a motion to reconsider. And I don't criticize her because people say, well, she overcharged the guy. She maintained those overcharges by Pete Ware. It wasn't an overcharge. The jury said this dude was guilty of it. And I don't like mandatory minimums in some circumstances. And nobody does in this case. It was going to be rectified. And everybody who got all worked up should calm down. And insofar as the exchange of a memento, they had David Lane on, prominent criminal defense attorney and a friend who said, it's horrible, this is the way prosecutors are, but come on. We all celebrate hard-won victories. This was in bad taste. It's a cautionary tale about using social media. But those are my thoughts. What are yours, Chris Decker? Yeah, I, I, I think that the the trophy thing was uh, not appropriate, uh, especially by a, a, a district attorney. Uh, but again, again, as you said, uh, I'm certain that there are mementos and, and trophies that are exchanged privately between lawyers in lots of cases. And, and so I understand that. But you don't do that publicly. Um, and, and the supervisor probably should have cautioned the younger lawyer to not involved in this. So, you know, was it overcharged? I'll, you know, I'll, I'll disagree with you there, but I do but how, agree with but you. But how, 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 well, how is it overcharged if it was proved beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury of 12? Well, overcharging is not the same as uh, saying that you can't get a conviction on it. Uh, when I say overcharged, I think that the elected district attorney has uh, discretionary obliga- obligations to be uh, to use discretion. And one of the things, in my opinion, uh, that should not have been done was to charge it in such a way where if the jury convicts, uh, it's going to lead to a de facto life sentence. Even the juror, but, but one you, of the jurors, you, always, you could always fix it later. So, well, and now let's get to that because, yeah, and you can always fix it later, but you shouldn't have to. And that's why I think. It, it was an overcharge. But let me let me immediately point out that, you know, the way this has gone down, there, this was not a motion to reconsider, by the way. It was a motion by Alexis King uh, within the Title 18 mandatory sentence statute. There is a built-in clause in that mandatory sentencing statute, which says the court can reconsider a sentence um, uh that has been imposed pursuant to the mandatory sentence statute after an evaluation. That's what they're doing. So this is like a, uh, uh, not a 35B, which is a motion to reconsider mm-hmm. sentence filed by a defense. This is actually a, a motion to um, a resentencing and for the court to exercise discretion under the subsection of the mandatory sentence right. statute. Right, and that allows, you, this, that allows you to do it faster, but you could get to the same result six months later. That's right. That's right. And then the third valve here is the governor. And all of this takes the pressure off of him because clemency is just in this case is likely to go out the window because it looks like the judicial system uh, is going to fix it itself. Um, and so maybe so not to everybody's Jared, satisfaction. If, if Jared Polis called you this morning at your 
and disturb you on Christmas Eve. That's what Jews do. We don't care. You know, it's like you guys calling <laughs> us on Yom Kippur. You don't even know. Anyway, right. if Jared Polis called you and said, Chris Decker, what should I do here? I would tell him, don't pull the trigger. You have a, you have immense executive power to wait and see where the dust settles, find out, um, you know, what the ultimate sentence is. Like you said, chill out, you know, let's settle down. Let's wait to see if the the courts can sort this out without having the governor to come in and, and exercise the um, clemency with a pen that he has every right to do. But I, I would be shocked if he acts on this um, quickly because it looks like they're, the courts are going to resentence Mr. Uh, Aguilera Medeiros. And it, it looks like Alexis King is now asking for a sentence of between 20 and 30 years, which is a significant sentence. Um, but, you know, it was a horrific um, uh, situation with, you know, f four dead, um, count countless others severely injured. And so uh, I think if it had been charged in a traditional way, um, then that's the kind of sentence that probably would, would result. And right. I think that's where she's coming up with that. She mm -hmm. probably looked at it and said, well, if I had a magic one and i went back in time and i charged it the way i would charge it and i got every conviction on everything i wanted this is what the number i'd get that's that's what i would guess she probably did uh and and figured that you know four vehicular homicides and what is it seven uh vehicular SB, sbi yeah sbi assault right. serious so bodily injury which means yep. bodily protracted injury. or permanent impairment of a part or organ of the body or a fracture of some kind yeah. i never met alexis king before my interview i bet you know her what she's like she's she's a very very nice woman and she is you know um sitting in an amazing seat and has a great opportunity there in jefferson county which is you know has uh, gone from from red to purple to um, you know blue or a blue purple anyways um, in, t in terms of the politics uh, Jefferson County was a was was a very conservative and and consistently Republican um, county and and now Alexis King has won and has promised reform uh, I know a lot of the defense community is frustrated. Uh, with what they believe uh, are, are not enough reforms or as, as quickly as they hoped. Um, but uh, I think Alexis is, is doing what she can to, to restaff that office. Um, you can't just change all the judges either, right? You know, she's only um, uh, running know, the DA's man, office. She's not the running concept. the bitch. There yeah. are committed public defenders, true believers, radical left, and then there are yeah. more professional types. I'd consider you that, and I'll let you define yourself. But could you run a DA's office? Do you think you, you could do it? And wouldn't you agree there are some public defenders who should never be allowed to have that kind of job? I would agree with the latter part, and I would tell you that I, I would no sooner run uh, a prosecutor's office um, than I would run for national politics. So, you know, I just it's just not who I am. Uh, I, I am thankful for professional and dedicated prosecutors, many, many, many of whom I consider my closest friends. I think they have a incredibly important um, job, you know, not just 
for our our current society, but but for our future. And um, I, I'm thankful that I lay down every night in a, in a society with qualified uh, professionals who are prosecuting. Having said that, you know I was uh, died in a wool defense, and and the system only works if you've got qualified professionals on both sides. And um, you know you see all those those TV ads. You know hire hire Craig. Silverman, former prosecutor, former judge, you know, my ad would be hire Chris Decker, never been a judge, never been a prosecutor, never wanted to be. All I am is your defense attorney. So, you know, I, I probably wouldn't, um, uh, there goes, so there goes my latest advertisement. Way to go. <laughs> That's okay. You do know Jim Colgan, the trial attorney for the defendant, the trucker. Tell us about him. Well, I knew Jim Colgan was prosecuting in Adams County uh, for uh, a number of years before he went into private practice. And, uh, you know, Jim, I, I believe I've got this correct. I believe Jim Colgan was a former um, uh, a trooper, state trooper. And he went to law school after being a trooper. So he knows a little bit about the highways. And he knows a little bit about prosecution. Um, I ran into him shortly after he took over the case from Rob Corey, who uh, I know you know and has, has probably been on your show before. Yes. But he, he took over from Rob Corey and um, seemed to be very confident. This was many months before the trial, but he seemed to be very confident that this case was radically overcharged, that um, this was, you know, a, a horrific accident, but it wasn't um, it wasn't reckless because – the, the trucking company hadn't maintained the brakes and, you know, it wasn't the driver's fault. And he did what he, he had to do to save his own life. And, and all of that didn't amount to uh, reckless conduct. Uh, he was convinced of that. Um, obviously, the jury saw it a completely different way. And I didn't follow the, the details of his defense in terms of I know he tried to put up some witnesses that, that raised question about the inspection on the truck. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if. He just didn't, you know, do a good job with that, or I, I don't know if, if maybe the facts just weren't there. But uh, you know, I think I know that the theory he had going in, he was quite confident of, and uh, obviously he was uh, surprised with uh, a, a conviction uh, on on those counts. Right. You know, the prosecutor in me, the plaintiff's attorney in me, says, what about the trucking company? Why aren't they charged criminally even? And, of course, yeah. they're being sued. They changed their name. They have limited insurance. But before we leave, and my God, you've been generous, I've got to ask you about a guy who I know a little, just like I know Alexis King from interviewing her. I had an amazing night interviewing Alan Dershowitz in front of a packed crowd at Paramount Theater. And now Dersh, who's been surrounded by controversy his whole career, he's super controversial because, one, he's represented Donald Trump. And secondly, because uh, Dersh stands accused by a lot of people of being part of this Epstein-Maxwell business. And I've read his defenses and uh, it, it, some of it centers on this Glenn Dubin who lives in southwest Colorado. I don't know if you knew that. He has a ranch like you. And he's a, a, a billionaire. And he knew Jeff Epstein. And he ended up marrying Jeff Epstein's former girlfriend, Eva Anderson, who was Miss Sweden. 
Now she's a board-certified internist. She's 60 years old. And she was the star defense witness put on by Jeff Paliuka. And she said, I knew Jeff Epstein. I knew Ghislaine. I trusted them with my own kids. Yet her husband is accused by one of the victims not called. Her name is, I think, Virginia Roberts Jufre of uh, participating with Epstein on the island, Dersh and Dubin. But when they don't call this alleged uh, Epstein victim at the trial, Dersh is saying it's because the U.S. attorney knows she's not credible. And part of her lack of credibility is saying that I got a massage uh, by her and he denies it totally. And I'm sorry to spout on so long, but a little birdie told me that you know Dersh and you know his family. You grew up with them. I I went to uh, Buckingham Brown and Nichols School with Dersh's kids and actually played on the soccer team uh, with his youngest. And he used to, he had a house not too far from the the school that I had been to. I was not close friends with, with him. Uh, but I, I did go to school with his kids and, and, you know, time capsule here. What was going on in 1982, uh, two, three, four era? I think I've got this right. Uh, in Rhode Island involving Dirsch. Klaus Van Bulow. You got it. So I remember, I believe it was when I was in high school, that he was controversial at that, you know, even he, back then. He was a, a dude accused of poisoning his wife yes. to death. Yes, gave right. uh, alleged to have injected her with uh, insulin to uh, cause her to go into a, a diabetic uh, coma, killing her, and then of course walking away with the riches uh, from her family. And uh, Dersh uh, came in, won the case. So he was certainly uh, he was certainly a prominent defense attorney and um, a controversial figure uh, even uh, back then. But uh, recently. You know, I, I like you said, I put him in the category of Lynn Wood. I don't know what's gone on. I, I seems like he's kind of gone off on the fringe. Having said that, you know, he has made a career out of representing people who are despised, disliked, mistrusted, and presumed to be guilty. And so, you know, the defense attorney in me says, look, you know, if he's going to stand up and um, make claims for you know, a, a president or um, himself or whoever it is, you know, you, you know, the guys, he's got the chops. Um, and I don't know what, you know, he, he does live the affluent lifestyle of the Martha's Vineyard crowd, which is, you know, uh, I think other than Trump, all, the last several presidents have, have favorited that sort of summer community and the avant-garde wealthy uh, island life of, of New England, um, Clinton, uh, Obama I recently had a birthday party out there or some sort of party. And uh, I don't know where uh, uh, our current president Biden spends the summers, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it were on Martha's Vineyard or Nantucket. So I don't know what's he going on. He did just spend time in Nantucket <laughs> over Thanksgiving. You are right. It's a, it's a different <laughs> world back there. But how many, you got to be super successful to have a house in Ridgeway too, a ranch, only 500 cattle. Well, you, you know, know my dad, these my, people. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's amazing the people you know. 
What a name-dropping episode. I love that kind of stuff. I'm going to leave it this way on Christmas and give you a wide fairway since I'm a golfer. That's the way I like to put it. Finally, Chris Decker, on Christmas, you've been so generous with your time. Are you optimistic about the future of Colorado and America? We've got COVID. We've got so many problems. I think our legal system is teetering. Give me some hope, brother. Yeah, I am hopeful. I am optimistic in the face of some very discouraging events, both personally in my life and uh, for my state uh, and for my country. I am I am deeply optimistic. Um, you know, I, I see it. Our kids, it's it's our kids. Uh, my kids, in particular, give me hope. Um, they're wonderful. They're uh, navigating the most difficult time. But they're going to make our country better. They're 15 and 17, Mm -hmm. 15 and 17. And, you know, I see their their friends and I see the kids coming in and out of our schools. I see the young students going into law school now. I see the young prosecutors and the young defense attorneys coming out. They're not perfect. They're still got to learn their trade. But, you know, God damn it, they've just got the spirit of America in them. And I think that that we are a, a, a wounded nation. Um, and that we are going to have to go through some accounting for for our um, our behaviors, our collective behaviors um, from all sides, and that uh, as a result of that, there there will be a better nation, there will be a better state, uh, because we've gone through some of these dark dark times, and there are those who are trying to pull us apart, and I think those of us who are trying to bring uh, the world together are only made stronger by those who are pulling us apart. You know, I sit down with a guy like Craig Silverman for an hour and a half on uh, Christmas Eve, and I realize, look, you and I couldn't be any more different, right? I I, I couldn't dunk a basketball, and I had um, a very brief window of dunking, so let's <laughs> not exaggerate that. Okay, okay. Um, and, but, um, you know, and, and my politics and your politics are different. Um, we've taken completely different paths in, in terms of our legal career. But the bottom line is you and I can sit down. We can talk through issues. We can do it without calling each other names. And we can figure out, all right, as one of my favorite phrases you used to, to use, look, uh, Good minds or competent minds can differ on an, on a on a significant issues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and as long as we honor that principle, that honest people and and right-minded people can really disagree, and as long as we protect the ability to disagree without violence and without uh, misinformation, then um, we are going to survive. And those who are peddling in misinformation right now. I think are doing it to the detriment uh, of their own cause and uh, their own party. And I think that the, 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 the party is going to be stronger and better because of it. And it may take some time, but it, it's, it's a coming. It's a coming. And I'm going to be right here in Ridgeway, Colorado on Dallas divide uh, someday retired uh, when my kids are going to be running this country and your kids are going to be running this country. And, you know, maybe we'll, um, be able to go golfing up on uh, Dallas Divide. Beautiful. Until then, I'll see you at Walsher. We have that in common. We like playing that Denver Municipal Course. I can't thank you enough. Those were such wise, great words for our Christmas special. You were the perfect guest, Chris Decker. 
Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Thank you, Craig. Happy holidays to you, uh, all of your listeners uh, who may disagree with me or not like me. I wish only the best for them uh, in the coming year. So uh, peace and joy to you and Wonderful. all of yours. Thanks, okay. Chris. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show. But more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer. And I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're to, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Gosh, what a great conversation with Chris Decker. I like that man's abilities, his facility with words. And he gave a spirited defense of Tay Anderson. Chris's father passed away um, while Tay was going through this censoring process. And I'm not sure he got to be there. I, in fact, I don't think he was. It was right when his dad died. And Tay had to go on his own. And my gosh. The oratory at this Denver Public School Board meeting was really something. First, there are a series of board members, and one of them is Barbara O'Brien, former lieutenant governor of Colorado. But they castigate Tay Anderson. They read the report, and they got on him for a couple of what you could call minor quibbling things. One of them was this Bugs Bunny meme that Chris Decker talked about, with a gun and uh, just try it, bitch. I think that was the caption. It's been my observation that modern youngsters uh, say bitch to men and women. It's not a nice term. I don't use it. I don't recommend it. But it's one of those words that uh, maybe it's referring to a woman, maybe to a man. You can draw your own conclusions, and you can draw them after you listen to Tay Anderson give a spirited rebuttal first, about five or six minutes of the accusations, but then stay tuned. Listen to Tay Anderson as he comes back with words of his own. 
comparing himself to the late Emmett Till, a civil rights icon, falsely accused and murdered over a claim that he did something sexually inappropriate to a white woman. That's where Tay Anderson goes. It was a board hearing this past summer, and Tay Anderson has not only survived, he's thrived because given the recent elections, he's now been elected to lead, be one of the leaders of Denver Public School Board. So I want you to hear from Tay Anderson. You don't get this sound much anywhere else, certainly not on Denver Trump Radio. What is Denver Trump Radio? It's any radio that protects the backside of Donald Trump, pulls their punches against Donald Trump, does not condemn Trumpism and its threats to democracy. And it's racist. And is there racism and white supremacy involved with some of the people who hate on Tay Anderson? I think so. He is a natural target, as Chris Decker said. Does that mean everybody's wrong about Tay Anderson? I don't know. But I'm interested in learning. And you can learn by listening. Listen to this. First, the three board members explaining why they're censuring uh Tay Anderson, and then Tay Anderson pushing back, pushing back hard. I support a motion of censure because this is how we as a board demonstrate there is a line and it was crossed. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Morvick. Dr. O'Brien. This is a sad day in so many ways. My heart goes out to the young women who weren't heard or who who were afraid to be heard. I'm sickened by the behavior of Director Anderson that led to this investigation and during it because it became so hard for so many women of color to speak freely. But I'm also deeply disappointed by the people who have emailed the board making excuses for Director Anderson. To say he was only 19 when the first allegation is based ignores the pattern of behavior that continues to this day and that does not meet our highest ethical standards. Dr. Anderson chose to serve on the school board. He is in a position of authority and leadership in Denver, but he has set no boundaries between his personal behavior and his powerful role on the school board and therefore I will vote to censure. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. O'Brien. My name is Dr. Carrie Olson and I represent District 3 on the Denver Public Schools Board of Education. The investigation and the report that we received tells us a few things. The most important is that the most ingredious allegations were unsubstantiated and for that we are deeply relieved. However, we must also address Director Anderson's behavior while serving as a board member. The report identifies a disturbing pattern of inappropriate behavior, poor judgment, and an air of intimidation that cannot go unanswered. The investigation found that while serving as a board member, Director Anderson, quote, had flirtatious social media contact with a 16-year-old, unquote. One might defend these as simply saying Director Anderson ended the communication when he learned the female was only 16 years old but it wasn't the only isolated, it wasn't an isolated incident. The report also reads a second instance of communication with a high school girl 
that was, quote, objectively flirtatious, unquote. For a board member, this is not okay, and it can be traumatizing to the student and tarnishes the integrity and high ethical standards of the school board. I do not believe, as some have said, that this is simply the regurgitation of missteps made by a 19-year-old man. As Director Anderson was an adult serving in a position of authority on the school board when he pursued these women. In addition to this, the report demonstrated that Director Anderson made two social media posts on his personal social media page during the investigation that were deemed to be coercive and intimidating to witnesses as these posts were widely circulated outside of his personal page. Director Anderson has said that he did not intend for these remarks to be retaliatory nor circulated widely. This is the sort of behavior from someone in Director Anderson's position can be seen as intimidating and retaliatory. Moreover, the report noted that 63 witnesses from whom investigators interviewed, 19 said they either expected or feared retaliation from Director Anderson for participating in the investigation. That means that nearly one out of three witnesses feared retaliation. For me, what stood out is that this report permeated, was permeated with a culture of silence and fear that Director Anderson created with his comments and posts. For this reason, and with a very heavy heart, I will vote for censure. This is very difficult for me, as Director Anderson and I have worked side by side in the past. He's engaged in our community and brings a refreshing perspective to the board as he is in tune with the wants and needs of many of his constituents in the community. I have worked with him over and over again during the pandemic and before. I do not think he needs to resign, but I do think he needs to learn from this experience and improve his power on the school board to serve the students he's elected to serve. The purpose of a censure is to make a statement, a public declaration that the behavior substantiated in the ILG report is wrong. It is unacceptable and it must stop. A vote for censure is not to shame a colleague who has already endured so much public scrutiny, rather to send a message to those who have been affected by Director Anderson's behavior that they did not deserve this treatment. Some may feel this resolution is too strong. Others will say it did not go far enough. What I can say is it is a step forward. We are accountable for our actions and must hold each other accountable. The report details behavior that would have been grounds for disciplinary action for any DPS employee who behaved in the same manner. But as duly elected officials, we have no power over each other. Outside of a resolution to censure, there is no disciplinary action we can take. The decision for Director Anderson to stay on the board is up to the board and to Director Anderson. We need to take steps to define what behavior we want to see from each other and future board members. As such, I will be working with my board colleagues and our policy governance training to write a code of conduct, as we mentioned in our August retreat, that will hold members of the DPS board now in the future to the same professional standards and procedures as all DPS employees when it comes to allegations of misconduct. There should be a clear path, path in place for how accusations of misconduct against a board member are handled and what restrictions are in place during an investigation. It is my view that these procedures should align with how our employees are treated in similar context. We now must get back to focusing on the work that we need to do on behalf of our schools, our students, our teachers, our staff, and our district families. Director Anderson, I am prepared to continue to work with you. I shared this with you last night. I'm prepared to serve the people of the district. I'm committing to you here and now that I will find a way to work together with you again. We've talked about having a facilitated conversation. I'm dedicated to helping us have a better relationship during the remaining of our time together on the board. I invite all of my colleagues to join me in working together for the DPS community, especially our students. 
I want to close by saying that I acknowledge the fear and pain that young women have experienced through this, uh, this investigation. We also recognize that this process has been difficult for many people in our community. For that, I'm deeply sorry. Our students have the right to feel safe. If anyone feels victimized, assaulted, or harassed, I want to encourage you to tell a safe adult and get the report, get the support, and report the behavior. I will now turn the floor over to you, Director Anderson. And now here comes the Tay Anderson pushback. And this is a well-crafted speech, and it gets powerful. Let me give you a bit of a warning about the sound. It's Tay Anderson reading apparent threats he received through social media, email, wherever. But they are startling, and the way he reads them is forceful. And I warn you ahead of time, before you hear it, this speech goes on for about 20 minutes. It captivated me this summer when I first watched it. You can see it on YouTube. But if you listen, you will get the idea. And there are some slight delays, and that's because Tay Anderson needs to get a grip on himself. He's emotional. It's an emotional topic. Suicide, sex assault, depression, false accusation, racism. Give a listen to this. This letter that I will be reading has already been published on my social media, and members of the public are encouraged to follow along. However, there is a trigger warning at the beginning of this letter and in the middle of this letter. This letter contains pictures of threats to myself uh, that I have received over the last few months. These include various profanity, various slurs, both racist and homophobic, and demands for me to commit suicide. The National Suicide Hotline is 800-273-8277. Once again, the National Suicide Hotline is 800-273-8255. As I sit here today, I, I wonder and put in my title, is this 1955 or is this 2021? Mary Catherine Brooks Fleming is my Carolyn Bryant. In 1955, a, a woman named Carolyn Bryant made false allegations against a black boy named Emmett Till. We all know the devastating and tragic result of those false allegations. Because of the words of one white woman, Emmett Till was brutally murdered. He was lynched. And we also know at this time, the same woman, the same woman admitted to lying about what had transpired 66 years ago. False allegations aren't anything new to this country. On March 26, 2021, false allegations of sexual assault led my life ch to change forever. That was the day I became known as a rapist in, the, in our community. Does anybody in this room understand what it means to walk through a grocery store and people believe that you are a rapist? To know you didn't commit a crime or an act that you're being accused of, or but having people call for your career, your freedom, and your life to be over. Does anyone in this room or listening know how it feels to get a call from your parent saying that they were attacked in a grocery store by an individual believed that they had raised a rapist because of what they saw on social media or in the press? Does anyone know in this room or listening know what it means to have your child separated from you 
because of allegations that you have hurt 70 or 60 plus children. Does anyone in this room know how it feels to have your grandparents' death mocked by your critics because they believe that you are a rapist? Does anyone in this room know what it feels like to learn when you get a call that your 13-year-old sibling has been threatened to be raped in retaliation to the claims made against me? Does anyone here know how it feels to have messages about your four-month-old son threatened to be shot in his head because other people believe I have harmed somebody else's children? all because of the words of one white woman. Nobody sitting on this board understands what it means to walk in the shoes of a black man in America. I could only hope that my road to salvation could be through truth, could be honest and transparent and participate in any effort to get that truth which is why I fully co cooperated with the investigation initiated by my colleagues on the Denver School Board, and I foolishly believed that the intention was to get to that truth, too. When I received the reports, I read the words I already knew to be true. I was able to breathe for the first time in months. The claims that I had committed sexual assaults were unsubstantiated. I'm going to say that again. The claims that, that, that said that I committed sexual assaults were unsubstantiated. However, in that relief, that, however, that moment of relief was short-lived, and it was soon met by sadness and confusion when I learned that my colleagues had decided they need to show for six months and a costly investigation, and the best solution was to continue to persecute me today. Today's vote for censure is unprecedented. I will go down in history as most likely one of the first, if not the first, Denver School Board member in the history to be censured. No process was laid out in board policy on how a censure vote shall take place for Denver School Board directors. This also raises a question about the precedent being set for the future of DPS board actions, parameters, and around future potential investigations. If any false allegations are made against any other board member going forward, Will the Denver Public Schools Board be launching investigations extending beyond the allegations themselves to include the scrutiny of the director's behavior as a teenager and or before they campaign for this seat on the board? If so, will DPS Board move to censure that director for any findings they find? This special meeting of the Board of Education does not include the opportunity for public comment, for the board to hear the thoughts from the constituents we all serve. Instead, we made a rule book as we went along with this process. This is unprecedented, and it reeks of anti-blackness and rooted in systems that uphold white supremacy. If we hold ourselves to the standard of being a district that believes in restorative and transformative justice, please tell me how in line this is with those values. How does restorative justice require all parties willingly to participate and not be forced to, to while forcing a punitive process? Because if I refuse to show up today, the resolution would have still been adopted. During this investigation, the board maintained the stance that we must take time for this investigation to hear the voices of our community and provide a fair process to ourselves. Now the investigation has concluded and taking action 
the board is not granting the processing time or reflection for me or to the voters that we represent. The report that the Board of Education praised shows claims that sexual assaults were unsubstantiated. I took accountability for my actions as a teenager and never again Colorado. I was forthcoming and did not lie throughout this process. It also showed that when I exchanged messages with someone and that these messages were not sexual in any nature, that, and once I learned their age, I immediately ceased all communications with them. However, today, members of this board are voting to censure and endorse a false narrative that I actively engaged in witness intimidation. How many people in this room know that on May 26th, Joseph Anthony Camp sent me a text message that says, and I apologize for the upcoming language, you are going to get run out of your public town hall, bitch. We are not silent anymore. See you soon, dumbass. I have endured almost two years of endless harassment by him. So I was fed up. I sent him a meme a friend sent me with Bugs Bunny. Yes, Bugs Bunny. And it had profanity in the text of the picture. I then posted on my personal friends only Facebook page as my cover photo for an hour. But my mother called me and said, hey, you need to take that down. And within the hour, I did just that. Who would have known that I would have been the first school board member to be censured over a cartoon meme? Today, we set that precedence. Congratulations. On July 7th, this board will also set a new dangerous precedence in allowing the board to interpret others' words and decide their intent by saying, I continued witness intimidation, shunning, and retaliation on a Facebook post on July 7, 2021. This post was made a week after the Investigations Law Group alerted my team that the field work in all interviews, all interviews, had been concluded. How would I be intimidating anyone from a process that has been closed? In fact, it was explicit in saying that I would not, I would not retaliate against anyone. Yet, knowing the investigation was over, one of you at this table decided that was a threat. Earlier, the IOG report concluded that my public statements prior, to July, prior on July 5th did not impact their investigation. This post was locked down to my friends only on Facebook, and it was not a public statement from my attorney or I. So how would this post be considered witness intimidation if my public statements prior were deemed not to have interfered with the process? Here are examples of why I put this Facebook post out and some of the hate that I have endured over the last few months. Again, I read a trigger warning at the beginning of this and I apologize for any young audience listening to this message. These messages come from across various different people from the city and county of Denver and beyond. And these started on March 26th when BLM 5280 issued their first statement. You should do us a favor and kill yourself. Tay Anderson is a worthless bitch. I hope you can't breathe the next time you're on the way to work because somebody because you suddenly have a major heart attack. You sick bastard, accused of molesting 60 kids, you should be in jail. Coon, you are a dumb coon, high school failure, piece of shit, racist fucker. Blacks are the lowest IQ rates in all the races, you fucking ape. 
did your dumb nigger ass wake up today? Because today is your last day, porch monkey. Resign now. You are the low IQ, anti-white, racist, full of hate, anger, envy, jealousy, Africa wants you back. Hey, I'm, I'm not gonna use this homophobic slur, you bitch pedophile. You are fucking dead boy. We are coming for your fucking skull, you dead motherfucker. Fuck you, you black bitch. Go fucking die with the C word after that. I hope you get shot by the cops, you dirty, low-life fucking punk. Rapist, you molested so many and raped so many innocent children. that it would be a shame if something happened to Khalil. I do not believe in treating, I do not believe that treating people like they do not exist is a form of retaliation. In fact, it is almost the opposite of that. Retaliation, as I understand it, is an affirmative action, indeed never inaction, which is undertaken and directed to another in order to punish or, per, or for a perceived harm. If someone subjectively feels threatened by a person, ignoring or otherwise not recognizing them, that is unfortunate and certainly sad. But the person, but the person who has not taken any affirmative harmful action towards them may be doing so exactly because they do not want to retaliate other or otherwise engage in a response to th that would have perceived harm. Once again, I am disheartened that a fellow board member chose to continue the efforts to disparage me in this context by using a personal Facebook post I made in which I clearly state it is not about retaliation against anyone, where I am identifying, stating, and stating boundaries that I will uphold with people who have publicly vilified me. This had nothing, this had to be done to protect my mental health. I am under no obligation to acknowledge anyone's existence as a public official or not, especially if their actions have harmed me. It is ludicrous for, for anyone to make the argument that by choosing not to allow people who have harmed me into my life and that this would constitute an act of retaliation, particularly posting the, ex, the, the particularly if the posting ex, uh, explicitly states this was not my intention. It was also made very clear that any person that I was referring to in a post that had participated pub publicly in this effort to lynch me throughout this process over the last few months, excuse me, let me read that sentence again. It was also made very clear to any person I was referring to in that post that had participated to publicly, publicly in the effort to lynch me throughout the last few months, not those who have genuinely participated in the process to get truth. Am I, supposed to the, am I supposed to support those who have lied, misled, jumped on false uh, conclusions, presumed my guilt, or, fee, or, or guilt without any evidence? My family, my loved ones, including my four-month-old son, have been the targets of continuing threats and harassment as a direct result of the actions of some people who have chosen public platforms to perpetrate, perpetuate articles, posts, narratives that support the actions against me that put my life and theirs in danger. My efforts to call out those who have made false allegations, racist attacks, and who have attacked my family and friends are efforts to assert my innocence and protect those I love. I have never intended 
sponsored, or participated in any act to punish the underlying individuals themselves, and I do not believe there's any evidence that proves otherwise. Finally, as a public official, I do not believe that I give up my right to defend myself, uh, defend myself from serious and false allegations. Today, I will become the school board member to value my safety, the safety of my family, to guard my own mental health, and not to engage with anyone who sought harm against me to be censured, which I wholeheartedly believe is a violation of my constitutional rights of free speech. Next, in 2020, I met someone via social media. We engaged in a non-sexual conversation for a few days, and I later found out this person's age, and I, ended, and I was the one to end all communications with them after discovering this person was younger than I was. I did not know much about, what, about this individual other than we were friends on Facebook. It was Tuesday of this week that I learned that this student was a, uh, that was a student in the Denver Public Schools. Do I acknowledge my mistake? 110%. Let me just say that again. Do I acknowledge my mistake? 110%. But there is zero evidence that supports any of the assertions that I knew anything about this person and still pursued them. It is important to note that this individual did not come forward to ILG citing claims of harassment. I willingly gave this information to ILG in the spirit of transparency. This was uncovered, this was not uncovered in this report because I willingly gave Nine News on July 15th this information. At the end of the day, all of this was outside of the scope of the original investigation. The investigation launched, launched to see if I had sexually assaulted 60 plus people and those accounts were unsubstantiated. Now as you vote to censure me, it should be a duty from every member on this board to combat the misinformation that I am a rapist when your own investigation showed that I am not. Since the Denver School Board is not voting me, voting to censure me on my personal life, outside of Denver Public Schools into behavior that I have openly admitted to and been held accountable for in 2018, I hope that we do not waste any more district resources seeking to unredact this report any further and we can move forward after today. Over the last six months, the work of this district has been sidelined by unsubstantiated allegations. We have lost sight on the important issues at hand, like student achievement, the spread of COVID, the lack of social emotional support, the crisis in our transportation system, the lack of adequate school nurses, and I do not believe that right now we are in line with any of our core values. And I am committed to healing this harm, the harm that this entire controversy has caused to our communities, but I cannot and I will not do that alone. There must be a commitment from this board to seek true, transformative justice that to heal the harm that all of us, all of us have experienced. Nothing is more important than the work, to, the work we do to create safe pathways for survivors in our community who come forward, share their stories, and seek true restorative justice. The restorative decisions we are making right now as a community are an opportunity to strengthen our sex education and consent courses in the Denver Public Schools. The space we hold right now is a precipice to be bold in how we refute racist narratives that have plagued sexual violence for so long. I believe the important message that can be conveyed at this time and this finding is that the unsubstantiated 
claims against me is no way a victory over survivors, but as an opportunity for us to reconsider how we view and create not only restorative but transformative justice for survivors falsely accused and correctly convicted. Dr. Martin Luther King said, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's gonna happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's gonna go, you know who's gonna get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined, it's all set up. So there's, it's like the, the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have have this. It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hey, if you like this show, please shout it out on your Purple Apple Podcast app. It would be so wonderful if you would scroll down, spot that place to leave a five-star review, and your personal review. Kind words appreciated. Thanks so much. Tell your friends. Troubadour. Hi, Craig. Merry Christmas. Merry, Merry Christmas, Christmas to you. I mean, How heartfelt Merry Christmas to you. Uh, and the same back at you. How are you today? It's kind of a raw uh, day. It's Christmas day Eve. Yeah, this, probably Saturday will be the same. You know what right. supersedes Christmas, Christmas for we Jews? What supersedes it? Yes. Uh, for the Jews? Shabbat. Uh, well, oh, well, yeah. We've talked but about I, that. Shabbat is supposed to be the second most important Jewish holiday, only behind Yom Kippur, which is the Sabbath of Sabbaths. But enough about Jews. What about Christmas in the Gunder's house? Well, Christmas in the Gunder's house is, is going to be, um, will be a nice, relaxing event. There's not too much going on. Um, there were some family members 
planning on coming around these holidays that are now changing plans for obvious reasons. The oh my and, god um, variant. Yes. Uh, the oh my god variant. The you oh were the my one god who gave variant me that. is keeping people at home. So it's going to be it's going to be my wife and our friend Katrina and my and my daughter Rachel who is staying with who who came last week and has been up in her room quarantining with the oh my god variant. Oh my god. That's yeah. uh, you just violated yeah. her HIPAA rights, but that's okay. I, You're her I father. I can do it. I can do it. Anyway, Are you going to order Chinese food? Chinese food? Is, it, it's a I, staple I, I, for Jewish people. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, and usually that would be, it, it was Chinese food and skiing for me for many years, but um, I don't think we're going skiing. All right. Now, here's the thing. Okay. Um, you are my go-to guy when it comes to religion. You called the variant, the oh my God variant, and I doubt you made that up, but you did for me because you were the first one to say it. And I, I go to I you. Promise, I promise that I did make it up. You did make it up. Yes. Way to go. That's amazing. That's well, it clever. was only because it was my mnemonic device. Because at first when they said Omicron, I wasn't familiar with the term. So a lot of times I'll turn to something like that. So I remember. You are brilliant and a little religious as demonstrated by your song today. Uh, yes. When the lion lays down with the lamb, it's a Christmas song. Okay. What's the genesis, all puns intended, for that uh, line about when the lion lays down with the lamb? Well, you know, I this was this this song goes back oh over ten years, and as you'll hear, my daughters are young. Um, we now did wait before you of, get to that story. Are you claiming yes. you made up the concept of the lion laying down with the lamb? Is that no, just I like was, oh my god variant where you came up with that? No, no, no. I was about to tell you what what inspired that. So, so the kids were young. No, and, no, no. But did do you know who? wrote about that maybe before you did in your song you mean when the lion lays down with the lamb yeah. well i can tell i was going to tell you where i where the term hit when the term hit me but Please. um i mean it was a common it's a it's a phrase it's a it's it's in it's a biblical term right now you're getting it and where does yeah, it come a, from in the bible well it's it's jesus it probably it's it's probably one of jesus and i can't say but i'm just guessing maybe one of one of jesus's um lectures or uh, one of his speeches it comes to his from following. our people our people really isaiah 11 6 okay and you've got it a little wrong okay there's 11 6 and 11 16 isaiah okay. every historical document that refers to isaiah 11 6 does not say the lion will lay down with the lamb they do not refer to the lion and the lamb. They say that the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, which follows what follows are six historical examples of information that demonstrate Isaiah 11.6 has never read the lion will lay down with the lamb. They always refer to the wolf and the lamb. Then they cite the Tanakh, Isaiah 11.6, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Isaiah eleven six. Now, you know what a fatling is? A what? F-A-T-L-I-N-G. A fatling? I don't even want to know. 
it's a little, it's like that veal chop you ate, you know, a little cap, a young one who's been fattened up for slaughter. That's why I didn't, didn't want to know. I could, I could have guessed that. Right, but when your song, to be accurate biblically, should be when the young lion lays down with the fatling. Doesn't he? So what I want to know is what self-respecting wolf would find himself grazing with lambs anyway? This is when the Mashiach, the Messiah comes, and peace will break out between everybody, everything. This is a key passage, but in reality, there never is that actual line about the lion laying down with the lamb. It's a wolf. Now, I don't want to wreck your song. You're not the first guy to make this mistake, but I have been doing some Bible research because I wrote a column, perhaps you read it, about the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, and I talked about birds, magpies yes. and crows and robins yes, and sparrows. Of course. Did yes, you like that? I liked that? I did. I did. Those bully birds, those magpies. Yes. Yeah. And I analogized to sex offenders, but I put a line in the column and my editor took it out because part of the defense of the Ghislaine Maxwell team in opening statement was to say, just like Adam and Eve, where Eve got blamed because she's the woman for stuff that Adam really did. Always blamed the woman, which I thought was clever until you realized there were no young girls in the Garden of Eden. But it brought me to Genesis 2.19, which proves it was a man's world, the Garden of Eden, because, of course, Eve got made out of Adam's rib. And before that happened... All the animals, including the birds, came before the man, and he got to name them. Can you imagine? Exclusive naming rights for every beast on Earth. What an honor. Well, that would be. I think that's a job I would like. Right. And here's the passage. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, there was the name thereof. That's a lot of power. I love that. Yeah, everything has to have a name. I'm, I'm into that. Yeah. Well, I think that was great, and I like our names that we have. All right, um, now let's get back to what you were thinking about how so anyway, this song no, it, popped into your fertile brain. It was a it was a picture that one of my girls because they were in uh, grade school at the time or maybe grand, or maybe grammar school. Um, one of them had a little tote bag and it, it, there was a picture of a lion and a lamb laying together. And I it was in the garage um, and I just walked outside and saw that and it was just this time of year and I thought oh when the lion lays down with the lamb. So that was the that was the uh, genesis itself of this song. And then I, I went and, oh, so then there was a huge blizzard. Um, I was one of the only ones on the road in my big expedition because it was like three feet of snow. I went into my office. Nobody was there. It was one of those magical days when it feels like you're all, everybody's, you know, in their own little cocoon, safe at home. I was safe at work. It was quiet. Nothing was open. And I wrote this song. And it's so beautiful. Then you had to come home and... I don't think I could ever do this with my two boys, but you had to convince your young daughters that they were going to sing on this song. But knowing Sarah and Rachel, they probably were enthusiastic. How many takes 
Yes. How, how did you coach them to be such great backup singers and harmonizers? <laughs> how old were they at that age? Oh, they were, I mean, they were probably, I mean, I think this song was probably 2007 or so, so like 15 years ago. Um, yeah, maybe. So they would have been, you know, um, seven and nine, something like that. Seven and ten. They're, they're, um, you know, their pitch isn't perfect, but neither is their father's. And it was nice. We didn't do very many takes. I played my acoustic guitar um, and I taught him the song and we sang it. And I thought, this is a gem. And it is. It is. It's something we, we cherish. I like to put it on for them sometimes. Are you aware of child labor laws even in effect 15, 20 years ago? <laughs> they were paid nothing. It was volunteer. Oh, it's such a beautiful song. You are so talented. I, I just, uh, I get a kick out of it. And for you to write a Christmas song, although a lot of Jewish guys have written great Christmas songs, you're just another one. I'm just another one. That's right. Well, because the feeling of Christmas is there for everybody. You know, that's what, you know, someone asked me the other day, do you celebrate Christmas? I mean, they were asking me, they were wondering as a Jew, they were asking me. And I said, well, I don't celebrate it as a, as a religious holiday, but we celebrate it as a time to appreciate your loved ones, be with your loved ones, get together with friends, all of the same things that warm the hearts of Christians, warm the hearts of Jews. It's just, it's a more secular kind of thing, but it's still there and we all have wonderful Christmas memories. Speak In fact, for yourself. Speak, no, go ahead. I, I'm speaking for you too, Craig, and I know that because because you're always down with the with the with any kind of um, Christmas song that that we can bring up. In oh, fact, absolutely! Later, if but you, you know what? You know what bums again, me out at the office that yeah. Christmas food and all the sweets. I'm gaining weight. It's not right. Every year it happens. You get inundated yeah. with gifts at the law firm. But go ahead. Right. Well, I'm just saying. It, it, my father tonight. In fact, I talked to my dad this morning. Um, he's going caroling, and the way they're doing it is basically because he's 97. Is uh, Karen, his wife, will will drive, and they're going to go to a few neighbors, stand outside at a respectful social distance, and Dad will sing his bass voice. He's going to sing "Silent Night" in German. He sang it for me in in the original tongue, and it's beautiful to hear. That's unbelievable. I was thinking mm -hmm. about that song, "Silent Night, Holy Night." All is calm. All is bright all is bright i think is so right. how it's, is it bright at night because well, what was it those, the stars were so bright maybe the stars the christmas lights maybe it's just a bright feeling and if you're in a manger with all those animals and a baby's being born it's kind of odd for the animals to be quiet no they'd be they'd be lowing and 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 uh, barking and doing all kinds of things no doubt Maybe it's that whole concept of when the Messiah comes, everybody will quiet down, calm down. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen then, um, Craig, about that. But um, you know, let's wait and see. Well, they did say the Mashiach, the Messiah will come when we really need it or this or that. Maybe we need it now. This, oh, my God, variant. I'm hoping. Here's my Christmas wish. I don't pray on Christmas, but I will on this is my Shabbat prayer that this Oh My God variant will inflict so many people with such a minor form of the COVID that it serves to provide a herd immunity and accomplish what we can't with vaccines right now. Is that a possibility? I 
I don't know because I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm as Lisa reminds me, my wife, you're no doctor in her Boston accent, but um, we do have a doctor staying with us. I asked Katrina about that and she says it's more related to the number of people vaccinated than it is to her. This is herd immunity, more relating to the number of people vaccinated than it does to the number of people infected. Okay. That's I don't don't understand the science of that. Um, Because I asked her after you and I spoke and you said, maybe you you po- you pose this thought which i think is a good one but anyway she's she's all down with everybody getting vaccinated well as so are we, as vaccinated are we. Boosted. Yes. i want to get that yes. fourth shot can you find me one talk to Katrina. i don't know there i haven't heard about one yet israel israel's giving out the fourth shot but they made the mistake of going with pfizer i'm lucky enough to get moderna and when i talk about good breaks bad breaks I think about, thank God I got Moderna. That J&J, they may have to change their name after all this. Of course, the baby powder stuff too. But you know who doesn't need to change his name? Dave Gunders. Do you remember what the album name was for your song, When the Lion Lays Down? So that was my first album. It was when I was just starting to put together songs. It was called Mountain of Dreams. And we have pointed out many times in our conversation that you, the mountain man of all time, you name your first album, Mountain of Dreams, but I don't think you've ever written a song about a, a mountain. It's coming. I think you're right. It was, it's, an in, it's an interesting observation, Craig. Maybe this next one. And you have such a full library of music. I can't wait for your next album, but let's brag on what uh, Bradley Stern and you have accomplished on YouTube. When I want Dave Gunder's music, I've got a one-stop shop. That's another song of yours, but how do you like being a YouTube star? Well, (laughs) I don't know about it. I am on YouTube. Thank you, Bradley, very much. Uh, I did nothing other than be smart enough to ask Bradley to help me out with it. Um, but he, he got, he got me on YouTube and he's, and I'm going to be on some other platforms too, that I know very little about Spotify. He's also setting me up on, uh, on some other, um, uh, some other sites, some as other well, platform. That's the I line. Need to give them, I need to give him a call and see how now, things are. All right. Going. Well, here's the thing. If you want to hear any Dave Gunder song, go on YouTube, hit the search bar and put in Dave Gunder's music. That's and you it. can see everything you ever recorded. It is so cool. Let's it give everybody cool. a Christmas present. You know what it is? It's when the lion lays down with the lamb. You got it. Thanks for that beautiful song. Thanks, Rachel and Sarah. This is a beautiful Christmas song from our troubadour, Dave Gunders. Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy Hanukkah. Happy holidays. Thank you, troubadour. Bye-bye. Bye. Singing love 
somewhere inside us a lesson to learn just look at the signs it makes perfect sense now is the time and this is our chance looking for the day when the been practicing law for almost 40 years like me, you learn a thing or two. If you have a legal problem, give me a call, 303-861-2800 at Springer and Steinberg. We do all kinds of law. Call me, 303-861-2800. We will help solve your problem. Thank you.
So there, my friends, is my Christmas present to you. I hope you enjoyed it. I think it's a special show, original content on Christmas. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your loved ones, tell your animals. I know my dogs like to bark occasionally in appreciation of the podcast. You might hear that in the background. Such is life. Such is my show. And it was a doozy. Thanks for listening to our Christmas special. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.